Here's another one. Welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here as always to talk about stuff. Busy week this week yes. on the show. We have as always Doctor Who to talk about. Doctor Who. Brand new episode. The Girl Who Died. Yes. Quick reaction, spoiler free. I thought it was amazing. Outstanding. Episode. I love it, yeah. Outstanding. This, this season has been incredible yes. so far. They are they are on a hell of a roll and there's, we're going to have to talk some superlatives soon because. Yeah. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, so that's our spoiler free review. Spoiler review at the end. Speaking of spoilers, we have finally both finished Persona 4 dancing all night. We have been dancing all night for a long time now. Yes. It's been a couple of weeks for me. At the very least, a lot of dancing after midnight. Yes. Which is bad because you really shouldn't play that game before going to bed because it gets in your dreams. Yeah, it gets in your dreams and I feel like it gets my adrenaline pumping if you're playing yes. on the harder difficulties. It's just like, <laughs> it's really intense. It is. So we will have our kind of spoiler-ish review of that, mainly the story mode, but also some of the game mechanics and things that we might dive into deeper. And then we've got a couple of news things. I've got some movies I would love to review on the show, just because I don't know if I'll have time to write about them, and they're phenomenal, so we're going to talk about some of those. Cool. And uh, just other stuff. Why don't we go ahead and get started, though, with... Let's start with a couple pieces of news. All right. And then I'm going to review some movies, you're going to review a game... Well, sort I would of. like give give a, start there? an impression, sure. Okay. Yeah, let's start there. So okay. yeah, I've been people who have been listening to the podcast for like the past couple of weeks probably know that I absolutely adore the video game The Witcher Three. I've I played through that game like everything I did, like like everything in the game I I did, like a complete playthrough. And then about a week ago, they released the first piece of like real substantial DLC. There's been some small add-on packs, like alternate looks for some of the story characters and stuff like that. But this is like a $10 pack of DLC called the Hearts of Stone that is a, like, it's a significant chunk of content of, like, game. It's not just, like, an extra quest, which they released for free a couple of times uh, post the game's release. And so I've gotten into that. I've only played about four or five hours of it, so I haven't had enough time to really dig into the meat of the experience. But I can already say, like, right off the bat, if you are someone who is a fan of The Witcher 3 and wants to play more Witcher 3 buy this like immediately because it's only ten dollars and it is like when i say i've only played like four or five hours of it i feel like that is about as much as you would expect a ten dollar piece of dlc to have worth of content if it is generous i feel like most times dlc is usually so poorly done that like my expectations for what a ten dollar piece of dlc is is like it's one long quest line that takes like an hour and a half to finish and Maybe. then hopefully it's like somehow rewarding it's like sometimes that stuff can be done fairly well. Like I think Mass Effect is a, like Mass Effect Two in particular had some that was like Layer of the Shadow Broker that was basically that, but done really well because it was a really fun quest. Or then you had like the Arrival, which was basically that, but it was awful because it was a really shitty quest. This is not like that. The Hearts of Stone is basically like a just slice of Witcher Three content that's brand new. There's no new landmass, like like no new area you travel to. Instead, they sort of like 
push back the upper right corner of the uh, Velen map and sort of just like give you a new like kind of landmass over there to run into. So it's it's very seamless. Like you don't have to like travel go into a boat and like go travel to DLC world. It's like no, it's just all of a sudden. You can kind of just go further in that direction where, like, before it would, like, the game would just say, hey, you can't go past this point because there's nothing out here. Now there's, like, some villages and stuff. It's not a huge chunk of land, but there's stuff out there, and they've populated that area with new random, like, undiscovered locations like bandit camps, monster nests, the sort of, like, little things to do that they peppered around the world. There are a bunch of those that I've been doing, and there's a new, uh, there's a new craft, like, merchant guy called, who's a rune crafter, who he basically, you can, uh, invest in him and pay him a shit ton of money which if you beat the witcher 3 you're going to have a shit ton of money left over so you just basically give him all of your money and then he can imbue your weapons and armor with unique abilities that some of them are really interesting like there's one that makes it so that if you basically if you have a i'll just call it a combo multiplier because it's basically what it is built up enough then if you use a spell it will imbue your sword with the effects of that spell to then hit like the next guy with so like if you are doing well in combat and you have this adrenaline point thing built up and then you cast your fire spell then your sword will have a fire effect on it for the next person you hit and the interesting little effects like that that it adds but it's nothing too huge and then there's obviously there's some new side quests and there's one long new main quest that I haven't really dug into too much because I'm just kind of leaving that for like that's the because that's like the core of the DLC so I haven't really dug into that I know by reading reviews that a lot of people say that the story there is really good and I'm sure it is but even just playing the uh, handful of side quests that I've dug into, into that the DLC offers, like all of those have been really fun. One of them is really great in that it's, and it's something that the Witcher 3 main game does a couple of times where someone will ask you to go do something and you can totally just like fake it because someone will give you a contract. And so in this instance, it's like this one guy says, oh, my apprentice went out to pick herbs and he hasn't been back in like a week and I have no idea what happened. So I've put this notice out for someone to find him. And in investigating where he's gone, you run into this very suspicious village where someone tells you, Oh, I saw that guy. He got attacked by wolves. And then he came crawled over here. That's the trail of blood you found that led to this village. And he just went back out and got killed by wolves. It's like, that's not a convincing explanation. Everything about this entire scenario here, like, you are obviously lying to me. But you can totally just go back to the dude and say, I guess he got killed by wolves. That's what I found out. Get your money and leave. I love that, that it's just like, and there's kind of no benefit, because you just get the same amount of money, so there's no real benefit to see the quest through to its true conclusion, other than you just have to be like, well, obviously there's something super fucked up going on here, and I really want to find out what it is, but the game doesn't even prompt you to go investigate it, it's just like, your quest thing just says, well, I guess it's like, you can just go back to the herbalist dude, and like, he, you can just complete this quest, and then you as the player just have to take it on yourself to be like, no, I'm probably, I'm going to look around this village and investigate all these other, like, dried blood marks and stuff and figure out what's going on here. So That's awesome. That sounds yeah. something, from what I've heard of The Witcher 3, very Witcher-esque to do. Yeah. And kind of think about morality and player control and those sorts of things. Because it would be so funny to just be the player who, like, just is like, yeah, okay, like, fuck, fuck it. it. Like, obviously this is, you're telling me a lie, but... I just want to get paid. If there's something about, like, because there are other people in the world of The Witcher that that you run into that absolutely do stuff like that, and that's actually, like, a part of other quest lines and stuff. So, yeah. Again, like, I'll probably, next week, I'll have a more complete sort of review to talk about with, like, having dug into the main quest line. But 
like honestly with how dismal DLC usually is like I've already gotten what I feel like my money's worth out of just the small amount that I've played and knowing that there's like the meteor experience ahead of me is really exciting yeah for 10 bucks that's a fucking steal in this landscape yeah like it's we're gonna like talk about the Persona 4 Dancing All Night DLC later because I've bought like 15 bucks worth of it I've got maybe 15 minutes out of that so you know yeah yeah, yeah, like, DLC is a weird, thorny path where, like, when you start doing the, like, math in your head of, like, I paid $60 for this game and got, like, this much stuff and this, like, rewarding of an experience, and you're asking me for, like, a third of that and giving me, like, a twentieth of that, like, it's... There's so much weird, like, you know, Battlefront they just announced is gonna have a $50 season pass. Yes. Which, what are you talking about at that point? I Like, seriously, we all know it's a joke at that point, right? Yeah, yeah, it's like you're saying that's, like... You're asking for basically a new game's worth of money, yeah. and they're not going to be providing a new game's worth of content, you know? No. Yeah. It's, yeah. Like, the even, DLC is weird. Even, I think, something like The Taken King, which is about as big an overhauling a piece of DLC as you can get, that's pushing it at $40. I yeah, think. sure, yeah. I, I think it's... I think $40 is fair for The Taken King, but it is definitely, like, it's not a good deal, no. I guess. Yeah. It's fair-ish. I'm gonna go that far. Okay. <laughs> I guess okay. It, it, it all depends on, like, if you're looking at the rest of the DLC market, I think that's, no, like... No, it is, but... They could have totally yeah. just been like, yeah, we're just gonna... It's just gonna be... It's just $60. Like, fuck it. It's just 60 No, they could have, and I think people would have still bought it. It's yeah. just, yeah, it's a weird thing. So anyway, while we're doing stuff, just random all stuff... Right. I want to talk about this really quick, because I got this uh, for my birthday, but it came out a couple weeks ago. It's a Blu-ray set called Masterworks of American Avant-Garde Experimental Film. That just no. rolls right off your tongue. It does. Now, normally, I'm not going to talk about this like for a long time or anything, and I wouldn't even necessarily highlight this on the podcast, but just in hearing from some of you, I know we've got smart listeners, we and do. I know I talk about the weird shit I see in film school enough yeah. that this might pique your interest. All right. So, like, if you know, so I go to the University of Colorado. We are probably the most significant school for experimental cinema in the country. Not not saying that just to like toot our own horn, but Stan Brackage, who is the most famous American avant-garde filmmaker, did start our program. So I feel like we have those credentials. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we have a huge library of avant-garde and experimental titles. Uh, I see more things on film than I see digitally in the program. I mean, I was watching a movie today that I'll talk about that part of it was shot on 16mm, and I was seeing that at a major movie theater digitally, and I could immediately recognize it because I know the texture of 16mm so fucking well, I probably my dreams are in 16 millimeter. <laughs> I have seen so many. So I know this stuff. And uh, Flickr Alley, if you don't know who they are, and I also just wanted to promote this because it's such good work they're doing on the level of film restoration and preservation. Um, they're a boutique label, kind of, not on the level of like the Criterion Collection, but in yeah. that same kind of market. Uh, and they mostly focus on silent film, uh, that era of stuff, and uh, lost films and things like that sometimes. Believed lost and have been found. Yeah, obviously. yeah. Not, not like they put out a DVD talking about a lost film, or they do like the Doctor Who thing of like, well, we have some pictures, right. and some insane person recorded all the audio for every episode of Doctor Who in the sixties. Right. So, like, this is the closest we can do. Yeah. So anyway, this set it's uh, two Blu-rays, two DVDs, same content. It's like a combo pack thing, and. It's got... I was saying this to Sean when I heard about this, when they announced this. I was running down the list of titles they included in this, and it's like every avant-garde movie I've enjoyed and, and like, really been interested in in college, some people went and put in a box set and restored. It's like, that's really easy. I have to buy this one thing and I get all of it. Yeah, especially for stuff like that that is very hard so to hard to come by. Yeah, yes. that it's... 
Yeah. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. So, like, if we're talking about, you know, oh, you can find anything on the internet, that is true to a, to a point. Yeah. There are things you cannot find on the internet, and sometimes that comes down to the kinds of films I will see in school. Now, these movies that are on this set, there's about probably 30 to 40 films that go from 1920 to 1970, and uh, focused more, I think, on the end of 1920 to 1950. And some of those, those these are generally more popular films and filmmakers like people you might have even heard of like uh, Maya Darren or movies like Manhattan that you've uh, even if you haven't heard of that you've seen footage from it it's just iconic um, aesthetically and so some of these are maybe a little more popular but there are definitely movies in here that aren't and even if you could find them online would be in very bad quality yeah. and you know the digital versions I've seen are bad and that's why generally in film school we watch them on 16mm film because you're going back to the original um, but it's made this set really entertaining to go through because I'm coming at it from a perspective of I've seen many if not most of the films in here uh, they're definitely new discoveries and I love that and I've seen them you know on different prints sometimes I've seen multiple prints of these movies I've seen some of them either with no soundtracks usually or with different soundtracks and that's all really fun because for a lot of these they are silent films Yeah. so they've had you know a composer come in and, and do some music for them and they're very good scores they're not the things some boutique labels do where they get someone to do like the rock guitar version <laughs> of uh, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari fuck whoever Wait, thought of does that does that really exist? absolutely it exists what? I've seen it Fuck. Yeah. They showed that to us in... That is uh, like the worst movie for that kind of soundtrack. Yeah, it was weird. Yeah, that's definitely mm. weird. Um, but anyway, yeah. No, the, you, you, the whole thing with silent film, if you don't know, like the, the whole Pandora's box you can open of scores for silent films and the amount of awful ones out there is kind of hilarious because people trying to make silent film hip to the kids by adding, you know, accordion or something. I don't know. Rock <laughs> yeah, accordion. It, yeah, it's lame. Anyway. Accordion but, is in right now. Yeah, one, one of the things, though, I learned going through this set is it's got, you know, a whole booklet of liner notes, and then the actual films all start with some notes, and it is so well curated, and it's so well organized. I just wanted to mention this, because if you are at all interested in the more adventurous side of cinema and experimental cinema, which generally means, you know, 5 to 15 to 20 minute shorts... Um, sometimes done in camera with a kind of loose narrative, like something that Maya Darren would do, Meshes of the Afternoon, uh, onto more, you know, um, just sort of photographic and meditative pieces like Manhattan, which I mentioned earlier, this film from 1920 that's just um, kind of shots of New York, onto things that are done as animation, like films by Oscar Fischinger, which we have in here, and some others. And then they even have a piece by Stan Brakhage and Phil Solomon, who uh, is still alive and teaches at CU, and I know him. And they've got a piece from them in there. So it's all those sorts of different kind of flavors of that. And it's in there. And it's so well curated that I think if you had very little knowledge of it but were kind of interested in this side of things, you could go through here and learn an awful lot. And I think it's all presented in a context where you wouldn't go, what the fuck am I watching? Right. And that's one of the most important things because I do understand that reaction to a lot of things. I have had that reaction to some of these films and then later come to love them. Yeah, like context is really important yes. for something like that. It yeah. is, yeah. Uh, it's like, you know, if someone handed you a book from the year 1500 with no context, you probably would not enjoy it. Yeah, or if, like, someone just handed you, like, a Picasso painting and, you, like, right. you had no perspective on, like, cubism, you'd just be like, well, I don't even, it doesn't, that's not a person, like, what the fuck is this? Right. But it's, you know, it can be a really emotional experience to look at that when maybe you know a little more about it. Yeah. It is necessary. So, it's just a great set, and I wanted to highlight that from Flickr Alley. Uh, I haven't watched a ton of it yet, but I did spend a night, the other night, watching like an hour. There's probably six hours of films on here. And uh, just did the first disc and did some of my favorites and, and some new ones, too. And, like, The Restoration of Manhattan, which is just a, a gorgeous film I've seen on several different prints. 
Never seen it look as good as it does here. I don't know how they did it. It's amazing. I always thought that film was sepia tinted. And in this version, it's black and white. And if you don't know, most films in the black and white era up to, like, sound, like 1940 when sound really becomes more, you know, enmeshed in everything... um, they were not in black and white. They were tinted either blue or yellow or, or sometimes multiple colors yeah. over the course, like uh, Birth of a Nation is that way. Um, a lot of, obviously, were t- tinted sepia. Um, but if you get to the source, often, sometimes you can get, like, the negative that still has the black and white. Um, but it all depends. And I think that's a fascinating part of it, where when you finally get back, like, oh, God, this, this has its original contrast from 1920. That's 100 years ago now. That's... Good that you can get something looking that good again. Yeah. And there's been that kind of decay. So, and beautiful soundtrack on that one, too. So, just wanted to highlight that because it's good. And I know some people who listen to this podcast are probably interested in that as smart and savvy film fans. So, yeah, that's really cool. Like, it's because it's, I feel like we are two people who have some very odd, obscure interests yes. between us that it's like, it's. I always appreciate it, even if it's not something that I'm personally interested in, to see someone like or a group out there that is like, cultivating and taking care of that like particular piece like yes. like you know like the people for me it's like really doctor who is what i've been thinking about because i've been going back and watching some old doctor who again and it's like the people out there that have like just through their own passion for this stuff gone out and like reconstructed this stuff that is lost and like found weird recordings that are like in nigeria and stuff or pasted together stuff that was used in like commercial bumpers and things on bbc back in the day like, that kind of stuff and those kinds of groups, I think, are really important, and they don't get enough attention. No, they don't. And it's it's just, it's awesome work. And any kind of, you know, preservation of just cool parts of media history, it's it's neat. And I think it's probably more important than ever yeah. in this era than it ever was before, you know? Um, because archival is an actual idea now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's so, it's just so heartbreaking when some of that stuff is lost and, like, there's just no way to get back to it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. All right, so let's go ahead and move on. I have a couple little pieces of news. I mostly just picked fun things. Okay. Um, but let's start with the, the big one today. Did you see the new Star Wars poster, Sean? Yes, it was It was a poster for a Star Wars movie, Jonathan. I don't know if you've seen one of those before. I know. It actually looked good. I actually yeah. thought this was the first piece of marketing for the movie that I actually was like, that's actually really cool. Like, it just, it looks like a cool poster. It was, I checked, it was not done by Drew Struzan. Yeah. But it kind of looks like in that it's, style. It's in the same style, yeah. Right. And I think it fits right at home with the old ones while also, you know, having, like, the new characters front and center and stuff and some fun little things to pick out, like the new Death Star-ish thing they have. Yeah. I hope this movie doesn't end with another run on the Death Star. It'd be so funny if, like, the new Star Wars trilogy was just the original trilogy again and you didn't realize it. That's like Luke Skywalker is just Ben Kenobi, basically. Han Solo just gets to be Han Solo because he's Han Solo, yeah. you know. Chewbacca, you have ha- Chewbacca hasn't even aged. Yeah, they just... <laughs> Pulled him out. Yes. Um, yeah, it's it's a good poster. I think it's maybe, like, it's so, like, it's weird to, like, nitpick posters, but I think it's maybe a little bit too visually busy for me, like, because there's a lot, there are a lot of characters on that yes. screen. And, and not even Luke. And there's instance. no Luke, which is, like, it's really weird because, for me personally, that is, the, Luke is the one thing from the original trilogy that I really want to see in these movies, because... I love Mark Hamill. I've loved Mark Hamill so much now from his, like, voice acting career that the idea of him going back to his, like, original star role is really exciting to me. And then also Luke is the character that is has the most interesting sort of future potential in more Star Wars movies. So it's... On one hand, I'm excited that they're not showing him because it means that, like, there's no sort of, like, spoiler there. They've got of, something like, to save. Yeah. 
But then on the other hand, it's like kind of like, oh, what if he's like just barely in the movie, which is like the other side of it that's maybe scary. I think he'll be in it substantially, but I maybe in the back half of the movie, and that's yeah. not what they're showing us. But we'll see. It, it, there's a lot of possibilities here. You know, we did a, our big Star Wars talk last week. Yeah. And again, what I hope is that the movie is kind of big and takes some risks and has fun with it and it doesn't play things too safe, which is what I feel like we're seeing from a lot of the ancillary material. Yeah, like I want the movie to move forward. I don't want yeah. it to be stuck in the original trilogy. I want it to be its own thing, you know? Yeah. But definitely, uh, and the other reason I'm mentioning the poster is that by the, I'm not sure when that new trailer is coming out. I think it's, it's Monday, I believe. Monday. Just in case you're hearing this or the podcast comes out and the trailer's already out, we're recording before then. Yeah. So, talk about it next week. It's going to be a Star Wars trailer. Yep. And Maybe they'll have the new characters say something. We will see. We will see. They don't even need to advertise at this point. No, that they movie, don't. That it's movie. just going to be a John Williams score with the Millennium Falcon flying around and someone igniting a lightsaber and that'll be the trailer. I mean, they could just have... And actually, this would be great. Mark Hamill just in a chair smoking a cigar for two minutes and not saying anything. And that movie would make the same amount of money. Yeah. But he has to light the cigar at the beginning with his lightsaber. <laughs> Do you follow, follow Mark Hamill on Twitter? No, I probably should. He's awesome. He, For one, he has as his Twitter avatar his picture of him on The Simpsons. Nice. <laughs> so it's Simpsons yeah. Mark Hamill. And then he just, like, he interacts with fans and he just answers random questions. And he's just, he's exactly as you would expect Mark Hamill to be, which is cool dude who has nothing to lose. Yeah. And is just having a good life. Yeah. And I love that. Yeah, we, I think we all aspire to be Mark Hamill one day. Yeah. He even explained on Twitter the other day that there's a famous thing people think they hear in A New Hope. Which is that when he gets out of the X-Wing at the end, he yells Carrie instead of Leia. Huh. And he explained on Twitter, he's like, no, actually, we looped that, so it wasn't me making a mistake. They told me to say this, and he said what he was actually saying. I forget what it is now. And it's like, people heard it wrong, but that couldn't have been a mistake, because, again, it was 80 yard. Yeah. And, yeah. It's just things like that. It's like, Twitter is an interesting platform for us to get those kind of tidbits from historical figures yeah. now. I love that. Anyway, alright, uh, let's see. We've got some Marvel stuff. This may have been before we recorded last week, but I, we didn't talk about it. So Marvel right, yeah. um, kind of shifted around their schedule, and they've got Ant-Man and the Wasp announced, which is their sequel to Ant-Man. Yeah. And cool that they're making a sequel to Ant-Man. Even cooler that I like that they just put it in the title, Ant-Man and the Wasp. Yeah, yeah. It's nice that it's not just Ant-Man. I mean, I guess they've moved away from, like, the number thing, but... Right. It's, it's more evocative, Ant-Man and the Wasp. It could have been, like you know, Ant-Man, the Lost City or something. Yeah. Like, they're terrible titles. Ant-Man, the Reckoning. Yeah. So, I like that it's Ant-Man and the Wasp, but I just like the idea that this, it, it sounds like it'll be a different movie, and it'll be yeah. not just them repeating and, and, you know, bumping Evangeline Lilly up. That'll be cool. So, yeah. Yeah, she was, she was good in Ant-Man, so it's, yes. it's, it's exciting to, that she's going to be able to, like, have, like, a real, like, significant part of the movie you know also proved that the internet can get outraged about absolutely anything because there was outrage over because of where they dated Ant-Man and the Wasp they pushed back Captain Marvel like five months and then people were like that's Marvel being sexist and it's like guys they haven't cast Captain Marvel they haven't gotten a director they don't have a script with Ant-Man and the Wasp they have a potential director and writers and it's all cast yeah. so duh like that's not they, that proves that they want to get Captain Marvel right that they're saving it yeah. until they have the time to do it that's 
Fuck the internet. It can get so... Yeah, that's, just, like, just really manufactured outrage. Like, you're yeah. just, like, looking to be angry about something if that's, like, what you're pointing out. Anyway. Like, if they canceled the Captain Marvel movie... Yes. ...outright, like, then maybe there's a discussion. But just pushing yeah. it out back five months is not something to be frustrated about. Right. If they canceled it and Kevin Feige came out and said, I did that because I think Captain Marvel's a cunt, that would be <laughs> worth getting mad about. That would be worth maybe firing Kevin Feige about. <laughs> yes. And, like, having, a, like, a much broader conversation. Now... Given that I understand he loves that character, that would also just be weird. Yeah. But yes. <laughs> anyway. That sounds like it would be some weird, like, supervillain plot that DC <laughs> undergoes. Yes. They, they, they get Clayface from Batman yeah. to impersonate Kevin Feige. <laughs> yes. Anyway, and then this was a rumor at the beginning of the week, but it was eventually confirmed, um, that Mark Ruffalo has been cast for Thor Ragnarok, yeah. and that is where Hulk will appear before the next Avengers movie, and I like the sound of that. Yes, getting like putting Hulk in more stuff is just makes me happy because Mark Ruffalo is so good, yeah. and we've gotten so little of the Hulk, uh, or at least his version of the Hulk. And so, yeah, like having him be in other Marvel movies is awesome, but having him be in the Thor movie is doubly awesome. Yes, because you know I think there had been a lot of behind the scenes kind of wondering at Marvel where they wanted to put him because they clearly did want him in something. Yeah, uh, and even if you kind of follow some of the backdoor history of Avengers Age of Ultron the script has a very different ending for the Hulk where they explicitly have him go to space hmm. and they for kind Wolf of Hulk. Yeah, yeah or something like that and they, they toned it down a little Wolf because Hulk. they wanted I think to leave like, options and then I think there was discussion of would he be in Guardians of the Galaxy it sounds like James Gunn really did not want that and I, I think tonally that might have been off yeah too. that would have been a little weird because also Guardians has enough to deal with already. Yeah, that you don't need to deal with like, okay, here's this returning character and we have to explain how he comes into all this and fits in with this cast. Especially because Hulk has an existing relationship with Thor and Loki and all those people yeah. too that that you won't have to introduce. Yeah. And, and I like the idea of Thor Ragnarok having Hulk anyway because that assures that, it gives us an idea of the scale they're going for, yeah. that if you're going to have Hulk in there messing things up, I like the sound of that. Yeah, and just having Thor and the Hulk, presumably they'll fight again at yes. some point early in the movie, and then team up at the end and do really fucking badass shit. Because, like, Thor and the Hulk are basically the two most powerful characters in, like, mainstream Marvel comics. I mean, obviously, there's, like, there are more powerful figures, but they're sort of, like, not as popular characters. So, yeah, having Thor and the Hulk fucking shit up together, that sounds really cool. And they're the only two who are not in Captain America Civil War. Right. And by that I mean the only yeah. two. So they're they're off in their own movie. That sounds good. Yeah, and it's just like it feels like they've made a smart decision in like this the power scales yes. in at work here. You know, it's like let in, in for like a Dragon Ball Z metaphor, it's like Captain America has a bunch of like Tians and Yamchas and Krillins in it. <laughs> And, like, Goku and Vegeta are off in Thor Ragnarok. Like, that's the, like, difference you're talking about in, like, what is going on. Yes, I like that analogy. Uh, they also announced in the midst of all this who is directing Thor Ragnarok, and it's Taika Waititi, who you probably have not heard of. He's a New Zealand filmmaker who has worked with uh, Jermaine Clement from Flight of the Concords, hmm. and they made a movie earlier this year called What We Do in the Shadows. They actually made it a couple years ago, premiered at Sundance last year, then finally came out in theaters this year. But if you haven't seen What We Do in the Shadows... Definitely the best comedy of this year. So funny. It's a mockumentary about vampires in New Zealand. Nice. And for one, it commits to its documentary thing more than any other mockumentary I've seen. Apart from maybe early Office and like Ricky Gervais Office. Right. Um, and then it commits to like, it has the actual details of vampires. Like they have to sleep in their own soil and all of those things. And it's funnier that way because there are so many more dumb restrictions yeah. that they have to deal with. 
Anyway, if you have not seen that movie, like, Sean, you would fucking love it. Yeah, I haven't even heard about this. It's so great. And no indication whatsoever that this guy would be good for Thor. But Marvel makes good choices with that. So I have no worries. Um, He's, you know what? their, Their general criteria seems to be smart and creative people. And he is absolutely a smart and creative person. So yeah. everything else hopefully falls into place. Um, yes. So let's see what else we got. Okay. Those are all good movie ideas. Oh, right. Did yes. you hear about the bad movie idea from this week? Yes. You go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> just go ahead. Okay. Say it. Just all say right. It. So um, they've announced Fox is working with Len Wiseman, who directed Live Free or Die Hard, which is the fourth Die Hard movie. In fact, if you're listening to this from outside the U.S., it was called Die Hard 4 in your country. Was it called Die Hard 4.0? Yes, I that's believe, true. Because it had yeah. the whole, like, cyber terrorism thing. Yeah. And, uh, anyway, he directed that movie, and he is now working on a Die Hard prequel, which will show how, in their description, I'm paraphrasing, but this is very close, from the studio's description, how John McClane went from a beat cop to a Die Hard cop. <laughs> Which is stupid because that's what Die that, Hard that's, is. That's, that's Die Hard One. Like that's the plot to Die Hard One is how Bruce McClane, who's just a cop, goes to be like super awesome, like terrorist beaten badass guy. Like that's what that fucking movie is. Like how do you make a prequel to Die Hard? It makes no sense. I kind of love this piece of news because it just inspired so many great Twitter jokes and stuff. Yeah. Like all the people saying, what other movies absolutely do not need a prequel? And it was just, it's great. Yeah, I I think since Terminator Genesis seems to not have done so well, I think they're probably just going to do a Terminator prequel. It's just Sarah Connor going to high school. Terminators aren't even involved. It's just before all that shit kicks off. Boy, do it in a John Hughes style, and that could actually be pretty funny. If you you knew it was a dumb idea. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, God. Die Hard prequel is just like... That's just, like, the saddest idea to do what, what to do with that franchise. If you're doing it seriously, like, I do think you could do the great postmodern satire version of that. Sure, yeah. Like, John McClane in high school as, like, hall monitor, and, like, the school gets closed down for some reason. I think you could totally... Like, some, like, German transfer student has taken over the school. <laughs> yes. It's like... On yeah. prom night or something. Yeah. You could totally do that. They're not going to do that. They're going to do something fucking dumb where he, like, takes out a B-52 bomber in that movie because they keep scaling yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Which is the, the the stupidest thing about it is exactly what you said, that, like, the demands of the Die Hard, like, sequels and, like, the successive movies in the Die Hard franchise are that it has to keep on getting bigger and more ridiculous, where Die Hard 1 is just some terrorist takeover in Nakatoma Plaza and he fucking has to kill them. And that's basically it. Like, that's as extreme as it gets is there's, like, a dozen dudes that he has to kill, basically. And then, you know, I haven't seen Die Hard 5 because it's who would It's why. one of the worst movies I've ever seen. But, you know, in Die Hard 4, it's like he's jumping on Harrier jets and, like, taking out helicopters with cars. It's like, I like Die Hard 4 okay. It's a fine action movie. But, like, that's what happens to action movies is they get, like, ridiculous and over the top. So then if you're making a prequel... Ideally, it would be like he kills maybe three people, like shoots three people over the course of the movie is how you would have to do it because he's just a normal cop. Although, unless you consider that it seems pretty clear he hasn't ever killed anyone in Die Hard 1. Exactly, yeah. So maybe he just arrests three people and and says yippee-ki-yay motherfucker to someone and handcuffs them and it's not quite as cool that way. But what they're actually going to do is like a fucking giant robot's going to invade New York or something and he like shoots it and blows it up somehow with a nuclear bomb. You know what I hope it is? What? I hope it's like something huge and crazy happens like that, and then at the movie he gets a concussion and gets amnesia and loses his memory from all that. Yeah, that would be great. 
Because they've also said they're going to do a framing device with Bruce Willis. Yes. That's like just like talking to someone and like remembering like, oh, remember that one time that like all this crazy shit happened before all these other times that crazy shit happened? Okay, Sean, Sean, I've got it. Okay. I've got the plot for this movie. I've got it all. So you know how the Die Hard movies, the first two at least, all revolve around Christmas? Yes. And you know how at the beginning of each movie, even though at the end of each previous movie, John McClane gets his shit together, he's back on like Skid Row at the beginning of the next one? Yeah. He's a mall store Santa, he's got a kid on his lap, and he is (laughs) telling him the story of like the Die Hard prequel as a mall store Santa, and it's also a Christmas kind of thing. Yeah. And it's like, it's like a Christmas story, the movie, only with guns, like, I guess a Christmas story does have guns. Yeah. But like... He doesn't want a BB gun for Christmas. He wants, like, you know, an M9. Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, like, he's, like, like all washed up and, like, an alcoholic and yeah. stuff. Yeah. Just, like... Yeah. Let me write this. Kid I in can... one arm, just, like, a 40 in the other. Yeah. I will totally write this movie. This would be great. It would never get through development at a studio. No. But I just want to see Bruce Willis dressed up as Santa Claus. Which I think you actually can do sure, in the yeah. movie North. Yes. He's... Yes. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you're right. In fact, if you want to see Bruce Willis dressed up as anything, it's probably in the movie North. Yeah. What if North is just the Die Hard prequel? What if that's, like, the secret? They just re-release that gym out in the theaters. Oh, it's so great. This is, this is just so sad. It's like, that is a franchise that so did not ever need sequels. Yeah. And now they're on their fifth, and they don't know what to do, because the fifth was so bad. And it's just like, yeah. Yeah, like, it's just, they, it's, they just need to just stop. They need to fucking stop. It's ridiculous. And to be fair, I don't think this is going to happen. If, no. if you follow the development history, there have been other dumb ideas. Like, this is real. They were going to make, before Die Hard 4 came out, a movie called Die Hard 24-7, which was a crossover with the series 24, where John McClane would meet Jack Bauer and they would stop terrorists in New York. They had a script, they had a director, they had all of that, and that was a better idea than this prequel. Yeah, because at least that would have the thing where John McClane and Jack Bauer meet up early on, like, the, the, at the end of the first act of the movie, and under some sort of, like, elaborate misunderstanding, think that they have to kill each other, and right. have, like, this really cool fight before they have to team up. Yeah. So. Yeah. This is, yeah, this is, like, sad and pathetic and stupid, and, like, they shouldn't make more Die Hard movies. They probably, even though I like... I kind of like all the, all the Die Hard movies I've seen. Like, Die Hard 2 is weird and kind of dumb, but it's fun. Die Hard 3, I think, has a lot of good stuff in it. And Die Hard 4 is, like, a fun action movie. But, like, the franchise doesn't need to keep on going. Like, none of them are even close to as good as the original Die Hard, you know? No, and even the original Die Hard, I don't think, is a masterpiece. It's sure, yeah. a really good action movie. I like it, but, you know. It's a great Christmas movie. Yeah, it's it's also, like... The most obnoxious Christmas movie Because that's like the thing that's like What's your favorite Christmas movie? And someone says Die Hard And it's like You're an asshole And I don't want to talk to you ever again Because that's obviously not the question I'm asking Like go fuck yourself Obviously the best Christmas movie Is Nightmare Before Christmas Okay It's a Christmas movie It's also a Halloween movie No 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 It's Before Christmas It Christmas is in the title It takes place before Christmas Leading up to Christmas it is a fucking Christmas movie. Halloween happens before Christmas. Yeah, but it's this is all about fucking Santa's in it. Santa's in it. It's a Christmas movie. The Boogeyman's in it. Yeah, so what? Boogeyman's in everything. You just don't see him most of the time. You just blew my mind. Yeah, right? Wow. But anyway. Um, Die Hard prequel. Don't do it. Speaking of sad and pathetic, let's talk about Nintendo. But, um, <laughs> shh, shh, just kidding. Yeah. I'd, anyway, 
I mean, this is like really neutral news, so that that, yeah. that sick burn doesn't really work here so much. No, this would, if Nintendo did this, be a smart move by Nintendo and would possibly yeah. get them out of the nosedive. But anyway, uh, there was a Wall Street Journal report this week on Nintendo's NX, which is the code name for their new console. Code name as identified by Nintendo themselves. It's not like a rumor, yeah. if you're not familiar with that. Um, but Wall Street kind of, it's just a report. It could be true, it could not be. Uh, being from the Wall Street Journal sounds more uh, reliable than if it, this was from, you know, Wally's Web World or whatever, <laughs> yeah. where a lot of this shit comes from. Or if, like, we just decided to say it on yeah. some random podcast. Right. Um, we have never done that before, just tried to create a rumor, but we could we, do that. We totally, totally could. Yeah. Yeah. Might get picked up, you never know. Diego Mortensen has just made a deal with Marvel to be in a, a new superhero movie. There we go. Done. Take it, internet. Run with it. Well, they're going to have to recast Tony Stark at some point. Sure, yeah, and that would be a really weird one to go with. Because it's, like, other than they kind of look a little bit alike, there's absolutely nothing similar about Robert Downey Jr. and Viggo Mortensen as actors. I That's why it's funny. <laughs> there's complete opposites. Anyway, um, so this report from the Wall Street Journal is that the NX will be, and the wording was kind of vague, so I saw people having a little bit of confusion about it. It's a kind of hybrid console and handheld like home console and handheld but not necessarily one device like you take it out with you and it's your handheld and then you plug it back in and it's your console it could just mean that they will release one thing called you know it won't be called the nx but like the nx for the sake of argument and you would buy maybe two versions of it you would have your handheld and your home console and they would speak to each other maybe they would have the same games same kind of general interface and all those things kind of like what i think the vita was maybe envisioned to be at some point with the playstation right yeah um and just kind of never was in part because it came out you know halfway through the ps3 and then really became more associated with the ps4 but it wasn't strong enough to do the ps4 stuff yeah all the time so that sort of thing and you know, I think that's very smart. It's definitely what some people have predicted because Nintendo's strength clearly is in handhelds. They really, they clearly know what they're doing there. I mean, the 3DS yeah. is an enormous success. Yeah, especially if you're comparing the 3DS and the Wii U. Yeah. Their handheld stuff is a lot stronger. Yeah, and where the 3DS had a rocky launch and they pulled out of that nosedive rather spectacularly, the Wii U had a rocky launch and just kind of stayed there. Yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. and... They, and it's just like the fact that they've shown so much apathy towards the Wii U that even at its best, and there are some spectacular games on the Wii U, no one could deny that, but at its best, apart from Smash Bros., which I think is a mainline franchise, all of that, they tend to be more niche, kind of weird, experimental titles like Mario Maker. Yeah. Or Captain Toad's Treasure Tracker, which was their big game of, you know, fall... Well, I guess they had Smash Bros. too, but anyway. Yeah. You know, so... Or Yoshi's Woolly World, which is out now, and I would love to find the time to play and don't have it. But before the end of the year, maybe. Um, It'll never happen. Yeah, So like they, but they haven't done what I think they've done with the 3DS, which is, you know, for one, court, you know, other, you know, um, developers. Yeah, like, like you third-party know, developers are not there. Right, third or even second party. Like, yeah. you know, they have stuff like Fire Emblem on um, the 3DS, which is technically a second party, but they're not making that stuff for the Wii U, you know? Yeah, so, yeah true. Um, and even just, like, the main line Nintendo titles are, like, like you said, it's stuff like, there's no, like, real new Mario game for the Wii U. Like, obviously you have Super Mario 3D World, but that's, like, it's that might as well be Super Mario 3D Land 2, you know? Yes. And it's, like, there's no Super Mario Galaxy for the Wii U. There's no, like, who knows what, like, the status of that Zelda game is going to be when it comes out, like, with the NX coming out around probably the same time. But, like, right now, there's no, like, big Zelda title. There's no big Metroid title. There's nothing, I feel like, 
There's no huge title on the Wii U that would gravitate someone like me to it at all. Right. And I think at this point they'd kind of be crazy to put that Zelda title out on the Wii U if the NX will be ready and it will be compatible. Yeah. You launch that thing with the NX and you've got market share done, you know? Especially if you could do that console hybrid thing and prove it with that. Yeah, like I I anticipate it'll be a Twilight Princess thing where it kind of comes out on both. One of the things they... Uh, talked about in the Wall Street Journal report is that Nintendo wants to have industry-leading hardware in there and chips and stuff, which would be very smart. And, you know, at the time they put out the Wii U, compared to the 360 and the PS3, it was on some level. Yeah. But then they were lapped immediately, and they knew they were going to be lapped. So I hope... The thing is, with that kind of language, that could be true for a year or two, and then who knows? Or I'm wondering how competitive they're going to be on that. Yeah, and it's like, you know, the thing is with this report is that, like, I mean, where this comes from is that uh, development kits have been shipped out to developers for the NX. So that's, like, where all this information is really coming from. And so, like, we don't know, like, the real specifics of it yet. So that kind of, those kind of questions I don't think we can answer yet. But, like, the the NX is on its way is, like, the real information uh, to glean from this. And it's, like, it is real, like, people are making games for it and we know that. Yeah. And it sounds like they're being a little more aggressive about it than maybe we thought before in terms of this could be out in a year or a year and a half or something. Yeah. Um, it's not as far off in the future as it could be, you know, being... We still haven't heard anything concrete about it. Yeah, but, yeah. but it seems like Nintendo... It feels like Nintendo is about ready to just, like, cut off the Wii U completely. Yeah. If they're I, making this move this early on. It, it's true, and it does sound to me... It, the big question left for me on all this is what's the 3DS going to be because... That's true, yeah. The 3DS probably does need a replacement just on a technical level, but it's been a success and it's never really like gone into complete stagnation mode. Like the new Nintendo 3DS has been a pretty big hit. So yeah, and like the, because mostly I feel like the Vita is not like real competition for the 3DS anymore, or right. if it ever even really was. And so yeah, like there's nothing, there's nothing in that like handheld market. Like the only thing is like. You can argue about like how mobile interacts with it and stuff like that, but for a dedicated handheld like gaming platform, the 3DS is the only thing out there that's actually competitive in the market. So they're not necessarily motivated to make something that's a specific replacer for the 3DS. But yeah, like these rumors and the indication with the NX is that like part of it will be effectively the successor to the 3DS. And that makes me fascinated because there's so many directions they could be going at that point. Like, does, is this when they stop doing dual screen stuff? Like, is the yeah. next handheld not a dual screen thing? Or is the NX going to be something where it'll also have a thing like the Wii U where you have two screens and maybe they're going to make it from the beginning they speak to each other more like the DS screens do. Right. And the thing is, it always perplexed me that Nintendo never figured out how to use the Wii U dual screens when the DS from very early in its life, I think, mastered that pretty well of it's very rare you have a game that heavily uses that second screen, but it's always nice to have. And they yeah. implement it very well, you know. Like, I, and I think anyone who's played, you know, like the Zelda remakes is really happy to just have their inventory down there and those sorts of things. Yeah, but like, I mean, the, the relationship between the gamepad and the it's TV true, is true. very different than the bottom screen, the top screen on, right. on the DS. I mean, I think you can see that, especially with the way that people reacted to the new Star Fox game at E3, yeah. with how like you had to look at the. Uh, gamepad to sort of see out your like gun ports and then like look at the screen to see your ship actually flying on the TV and that like the relationship between that seemed very disorienting for people. Yeah. So it's an interesting story to follow and we'll talk about it more. It's just man Nintendo, they're still wildly successful and smart in some arenas, not so much in others, and it's a saga at this point. Yeah, like if they're kind of the most interesting company in games right now just because 
they are like completely different. Like it feels like you have Microsoft and Sony and the PC platforms are all in like the same conversation with each other. And they're and very then, stable. Yeah. And then Nintendo's over off in the corner just doing like just being crazy and weird and like not understanding anything about anything that everyone else is doing is like, well, okay, we're going to make you put in like 12 digit codes to download Mario Maker levels and blah, blah, blah. This like, we're going to make this really awesome game and then put all these like bunk ass online features in it that have already been solved literally like 10 years ago by other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's like they're the kid in the class who did not take their meds. And they're running around that's, in the corner. Yeah, that's kind of what it feels like. Is that Nintendo is off in their own like imaginary world, and some of the stuff they put out is really interesting, but none of it is quite interesting enough to attract me. They have so much potential. If only they could sit down and do their work. Yeah, yeah. Now this comparison's getting dark. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, I want to talk about some movies I saw. All right, I'm going to go backwards because I'm going to literally like right before we recorded the podcast, I like walked in the door from seeing a movie, and right. that was Steve Jobs. The film written by Aaron Sorkin, directed by Danny Boyle, starring Michael Fassbender, Kate Winslet, Seth Rogen. Oh, this isn't the one with Ashton Kutcher. No. Oh, okay. And my tweet after seeing the movie was that Ashton Kutcher must look at Fassbender in this movie and just cry into his pillow from feelings of inadequacy. Well, I feel like, because wasn't the whole thing with like Ashton Kutcher, it's like, I mean, the guy's an okay actor, but it feels like they cast him because he looks like young Steve Jobs, if you look at pictures of young Steve Jobs. Well, yeah, and that movie was a really gross cash grab right after the guy died, you know? Which, yeah, anyway. Uh, but this is the real Steve Jobs movie, basically. Not the, you know, low-rent version. Um, you know, written and directed and starring good people and all that. And it is just obscenely good. It is so fucking fantastic. I was just kind of cackling through half of it. Because it's just, it is on fire. It is electric. It is a terrific script Aaron Sorkin has written. And Aaron Sorkin has basically written a theater play. It's three acts, and it's only really three scenes. It's cool. set at three product launches, and it's and they're interesting ones he chose. It's the original Macintosh, the Next, which is the big failure that he did when he was away from Apple, and then the iMac, which was his return to Apple. And so over a period of about 15 years, and they take place in the 40 minutes immediately leading up to each of those conferences, and it's all in real time. Huh. And then they jump. And there's little interstitial things in between that just kind of fill you in on kind of in broad strokes what happens. Um, and that's such a smart idea for a biopic because yeah. you get to get this kind of sense of scope of the guy's life without doing birth to death. Yeah, and like you get the scope and you get the detail, right? Right. Like that's, yes. Yeah, that seems really smart. Yeah, and it's very theatrical, I think, in the Shakespearean sense. Like if you've read a Shakespearean history play of a, of a great figure like, you know... Julius Caesar or Henry, pick your number, or, you know, whatever you want. Henry the Fourth, part one, don't do part two. Okay. No, never do part two. <laughs> part two's got, like, the one good scene, right? With yeah, 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 yeah. Part two has, it has, like, two or three good scenes. The main good scene is at the very yeah. end. But, yeah, most of it is, like, this just feels like, like, the first, like, like studio mandated sequel in, the, in like the history of fiction or something. Yes, in the fourth part two. Um, but if you've read those plays, the histories are often really good. But the yeah. way Shakespeare approached them, and he knew this, and his audience knew this. He wasn't making literal history. No one yeah. expected that. It's a representation where you take some things you've learned about the figure, about the time, and you kind of tell a story within that. But none of the events you're seeing like literally happened. Yeah, you know. Um, it's all through the dialogue you're kind of imagining things And that's totally what the Steve Jobs movie is And it's almost kind of bold Because people don't want to do that anymore Even though every biopic you've ever seen Is 99% fiction Because people don't talk to a camera that way You know, it's yeah. that kind of thing So I, I think by kind of 
edging into the artifice, this becomes already just so much better than 99% of biopics I've ever seen. But there's that theatricality. And then Danny Boyle, who is a really, I think, talented director who is yeah. sometimes undone by the material he chooses, just takes it and runs with it. And the whole movie is just, it's on fire. It is so well-paced. It's actually exciting because of just how much interpersonal tension is going on with everything. Michael Fassbender is just intense and ferocious, but he's got that intelligence to him that is so key, but also that sense of he doesn't give a fuck and he really doesn't understand emotion or compassion, right? which we know is pretty true about the real Steve Jobs. Yeah. So very good portrait on that level. And then all the other people around him are so great. Um, basically, it's the same small group of characters and, and the actors I named and a couple others, and they're all fantastic. And they basically, he has an encounter with each of them on the day of that press conference. Again, that didn't happen, but it's, it happened in the sense of these were things in his life. and Yeah, it happened in like a sort of like thematic sense. Right. It didn't like, yeah, like he didn't literally have like a conversation with like all these people. Right. But like, it's like the, the sort of like the movement of the history Yes. Brings you to like all these points and has to have all these conversations. Yes. And there's just so many great things. Like one of the, there's basically two big emotional through lines, which is his relationship with his daughter, Lisa, who he denied was his daughter when, for like the first 10 years of her life. So that's heated. And yeah. then his relationship with Steve Wozniak, which. The Woz. The Woz. And if you were disappointed by the Woz just being a funny fat guy in the Ashton Kutcher movie, you're going to love Steve Jobs this one because he's played by Seth Rogen. Who is the perfect guy to play Waz yeah. because he is affable and smart. And that's what Waz is. He's not a funny fat guy. He's a really smart guy who happens to be affable and funny. Yeah. You know? And Seth Rogen is that to a T. It's like the role he was born to play. And he's great. And he also has this sense of kind of humanity and compassion. And he is in that sense, you know, the yin to Steve Jobs' yang. And that's kind of the big theatrical thing they put them in here. And there's just this, you know, phenomenal confrontation they have at the end of the movie where over this period of years it kind of blows out of proportion into they have this big shouting match and it ends with Waz saying you know it's not a binary Steve you can be good and a genius at the same time and walks out of the room and that's kind of the thesis of the movie and it's great nice I I like to know that the Waz has a good like dropping the mic moment he gets the last word on that because he should it's the fucking Waz yeah and there's just a bunch of great stuff about that um and I could go on and on, you know, it's, it's got a credit in there based on the book by Walter Isaacson, which is kind of funny because I've read the book by Walter Isaacson. It's the biography that came out the month Steve Jobs died. So it was not written, it, you know, it doesn't talk about his death because obviously when it was written he was not yeah. dead yet. Um, but that's one of the best biographies I've ever read. It's just fantastic. It's so in-depth, it's so well done, it's so well researched, and it is not unflinching. It's a very negative portrait of Steve Jobs in a lot of ways, and yet I got to the end of it and felt a very emotional connection to this figure. Because I think when you paint any interesting human being with complexity, that's what you get, because humans are complex. Yeah, exactly. Like, there's like there's no such thing as, like, an evil person, or even really a bad person when you get down to it. Like, there are people who have done awful things, yeah. but, like, it's so hard to, like, describe that individual person, like a specific morality the way that you do a character, you know? Right. And, you know, I think with Steve Jobs, this is a guy who obviously changed the world. He did big, big things. And his legacy is something you kind of have to think about and reckon with. I'm recording this on a MacBook Pro. You know, these are these are things that are just in everyday life. And I think that book does it very well. And what I was going to say is it's funny it's based on that because the book is, it's a biography. It's birth to death or close to death. So... Yeah. And that's what it should be. The movie is not that at all. But I see where they had to do that based on thing because it takes a lot of those details, but also just the movie also 
is very unflinching and very unflattering, and then you get to the end, and I felt, not choked up because that's not what Aaron Sorkin does, but I felt definitely kind of emotional at you feel the sweat, the sweep of someone's life, and that's yeah. an amazing thing to capture. And there is kind of this arc of change, and it's glacial, it's not tectonic in any way, but kind of him kind of, and not even softening is the right word, but just his approach to the world, which is true because he, as a human, I do think had to change to go from the guy who invented a lot of products that flopped and then did the revolution of the 2000s with the right. iPod and stuff like that. So it is tremendously fascinating, and it is just such a good movie. And on just the most basic level, it is incredibly entertaining. It moves and moves and moves. It is fast-paced. It is exciting. Um, you know, it's two hours long, goes by in a heartbeat, it feels like. You know, and they could have done the movie in like three one takes if they wanted to, and I'm actually glad they didn't go that gimmicky with it because it's just really well done the way it is. And it has some little like flashbacks things into it, but they're so they're woven in so well it doesn't feel like they're taking you out of the overall conceit. Like I think you could still stage this movie on Broadway and it would be great. But cool. having it done this way with Danny Boyle directing, excellent. So great movie. Also a great movie is Steven Spielberg's Bridge of Spies. With Tom Hanks that also came out this weekend And um, I don't even want to get into really what the story is It's Cold War era, it's about a lawyer Who has to defend an accused Soviet spy and it spirals From there, it's a very complex story But I, this is another movie I just enjoyed so purely I was Cackling through parts of it because it's just so Good and I feel like when Spielberg Is on the top of his game No one knows what he does Just yeah. in terms of how he can build a sequence How he can build characters and just his general sense of cinematography and the basics of filmmaking, he is so good at that, he makes it look easy and effortless. And this movie obviously is not easy and effortless because it's mostly backdoor negotiations and things that shouldn't be as exciting as they are. But this movie, it's two and a half hours and it goes by in a heartbeat. And it is just so well done. It's got a couple of moments where I think Spielberg ladles things on a little too thick in terms of making the Soviets look bad or... Making just certain things like a little too broad But overall he doesn't play that It doesn't have the problem Lincoln did I think Where it has a really bad last scene Yeah And Lincoln is like an A plus movie With like a C final scene Yeah it's it has the Superman the motion picture syndrome Yes I mean, It's not like an awful ending it's, it's, it's not like to that scale But no. it's a similar thing of like There's a clear kind of moment where it's like Okay this is like a good spot for like the movie to basically wrap up and then you keep on going and like, oh no, why did you do this? Yeah. And I, I didn't feel... There was a moment where I would have cut Bridge of Spies, maybe, and I know old-fashioned Hollywood would have. And it goes on like five minutes past that, but those five minutes are good, so it's, it's okay. Um, Tom Hanks is fantastic. It just made me reflect, like, Tom Hanks is also an actor who... What he does, I think, is undervalued today because he is such a different actor than I think our modern breed. Like, this is not ferocious acting like you get in Steve Jobs. This is... Every man understated kind of work And Tom Hanks is the best at that yeah. He is a movie star through and through And this is such good work from him um, How I describe the movie on Twitter And I think it's totally And I like this description Is it is the Cold War era spy thriller version Of To Kill a Mockingbird huh. And if that doesn't make you want to see it I don't, you, There's no hope for you Because that's an awesome description And that's what the movie is And it's Wait, great So in that equation Who is Atticus Finch? Is Tom Hanks Tom Hanks? Okay yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah that makes it even better Yeah because he has to Defend someone who is unpopular And he has to kind of Stand up for an unpopular opinion At the time But with all the added wrinkles Of Cold War era spy espionage nice. And I love all that So and it's just very well done All of the acting is good Basically this movie It's cast Is Tom Hanks and then a small army of TV character actors 
And I love that when I can just feel like, I know that guy from that show and that guy from right, that yeah. show. And they're pretty much playing their character from that show, but it works here. And overall, I think this movie is really one where you can say they don't make them like that anymore because it feels like a Hollywood movie from the 50s or 60s or 70s and just so good in that way. Um, and I think it's something that... And people are really enjoying it, I've seen. I, I don't know if it can get you know any big awards attention at the end of the year because I just I don't know if it's flashing enough, but it's got beautiful cinematography, great music, great acting, and it's just... It like it hit so many of my personal buttons of like genres and things I like that it felt like half the movie I was like this is made for me I love it and um, really really good nice yeah yeah I've heard like really good things about it yeah it sounds really awesome I wanted to see three movies this weekend I also wanted to see Crimson Peak by Guillermo del Toro I'm not at the time yet I will looks cool at the very yeah. least it'll be really pretty yeah I I like that like every time I have seen because I watched like a clip of him he was on a the late show with Colbert and I've seen like a couple of other like like little bits of like interviews and stuff I like how like I think I've seen him describe that movie as a gothic romance a hundred times it's like the dude knows what genre the movie's in it's a genre I really like so I'm definitely going to watch that at some point yeah absolutely and like the the trailers are advertising it as horror and I think that's why he's been working against that so much and the movie bombed hard this weekend which is too bad but I think that's probably that disconnect and I don't know really how else you would market a movie like that yeah, because, like, gothic romance is something very, very specific that, like, yeah. is something that, like, in literature I've studied extensively because it's a big part of, like, 19th century literature that I'm yeah. really fascinated by of stuff like Dracula. Yeah, and, you know, if you're only used to Guillermo from his American work, he more indulges kind of his pulp fiction kind of side of himself. Um, but he's a very smart and very learned man. Yeah. And his Spanish language work reflects that if you've seen, like, Pan's Labyrinth is the famous one. Um, so this is more in that vein, it sounds like. And I'm excited yeah. to see it, but... And also, you mentioned Guillermo being on Colbert. I want Guillermo del Toro to like host a talk show. <laughs> I would be a good, yeah, you would be a good host. I don't want him to stop making movies, but at the same time, I, he's just one of those guys I love hearing talk. Yeah, he's yeah, he's very affable. Like he's and he's got like a fantastic accent that yes. makes it really fun to listen to. And he's just smart and funny, yeah. and all the things you kind of he's someone you just like to go have a conversation with. Yeah, that like he he knows a lot about a broad number of subjects that he can talk about. Yeah, and you could talk to him about kaiju and shit like that. If yeah, you exactly. Want. Yeah, like you can like talk about like the height of gothic romance in like the mid nineteenth century, and then you can also talk to him about Godzilla movies. That's a guy after my own heart. All right, so Sean, all that stuff's fun. But we got to talk about dancing. I mean, I have been... Da- it's night right now. I've been dancing. I don't know if you've noticed, but... You've been doing your microdance. Yes, yeah, my microdance. Your podcast microdance. Yes. All right. Dancing all night. Dancing all night. We've heard your thoughts on it. Extensively, yes. Recap really quick. Uh, I think it's amazing. If you are... I mean, the easy way to explain it is that if you're someone who is a fan of the story and characters of Persona 4, and you're also a fan of rhythm games in the vein of the recent Hatsune Miku titles, this is the perfect game for you. I am both of those things... So it is the perfect game for me. I think it's incredible. It's a really good game. I and I want to like preface that that I really love this game. I'm glad I I've sunk a lot of money into it, the yeah. DLC and stuff. I've had a lot of fun with it. I think the actual dance mechanics and the amount of like effort that went into illust- like animating those dances and all the environments and the character models is outstanding and so far above and beyond the Call of Duty. It's kind of mind-boggling at times. Right. Like when you watch just how much cuteness they infused into Nanako. And it's like, they must have like gotten a laboratory full of children and watched them dance. And it's like, like they like melted kittens down into like their core, like right. constituent cute pieces and just like breathed life into it somehow in the game. Yeah. 
So that's what I want to preface it all with. I'm definitely in the camp, like, this pro this game, buy this game, it's great. I was a little disappointed by the story mode. Okay. And I'll start there. Like, and I think it's because I just played Persona Q, and Persona Q is a such a more substantial version of this, where it is fan servicey, but it's also telling a much bigger story. I think the writing is so much more on point for the characters in that one. And I think it ultimately gets to a much more dynamic, emotional place with a lot of them. Uh, and then just, you know, game, it, this is a visual novel and that's a game, so you can't really compare those kind of two sides of it as much. Right. But this, I kind of kept waiting for the story to kick into gear. I think it's really slow at the beginning. Then you get a chapter with basically the underclassmen, the third years, or second years. Yeah. And I really liked that stuff. And that was probably my favorite stretch of the game. And then I think there's some really interesting stuff with Konami Mashita. Spoilers from here on out. Yeah. Um, who is the new main character, kind of new central character in this game. And Nanako and kind of that investigation. But I think it's all paced very awkwardly. I think it's... Usually, I think pretty much think pretty much every scene went on too long for my tastes, um, and I think they did a lot of good stuff with Konami. And then when I kind of thought it was at its most interesting, with the villain was her shadow, and they were going all Fight Club on us, it's just another god they have to go yell at. Hey, and that, Jonathan, guess what? It's a Persona game. Yeah, it is. But it's like, if you were expecting it to not be some like slumbering ancient deity. Guess what? It's a slumbering ancient deity. It's a slumbering ancient deity. It just, you know, there was no point where I felt like anything got as dynamic as I maybe would have wanted. And, and again, this is disappointment relative to really high bars. Yeah. So, like, I still think relative to most other games made in the world, there is sharper character work and writing and character designs and all that than in 99% of stuff you will play. So, I'm only grading this on the curve of Persona. Yeah. This was slightly undercurved for me. I still enjoyed a lot of it. I laughed at a lot of it. Um, there are certain things, you know, done by some of the main characters, mostly again the, the second-year students who I think have some great material, um, and and even Teddy, who I think has some really interesting moments in this one. So there's a lot of good stuff. I wouldn't I wouldn't dissuade anyone from buying the game and playing the story mode. That's not what I'm saying. Yeah. It's slightly disappointing. I mean, it's something where I feel like I actually have basically the same feelings for you, my, but my expectations were maybe tempered more appropriately because you haven't played any of the arena games, correct? Not t I've played like an hour of you's story. Yeah, so like yeah. you haven't really, like, because I've played through the story modes of both Persona 4 Arena 1 and Ultimax, and this, like, the, the format and the structure and the writing is very, very similar to those, especially to Ultimax's story. And I do think that, like, because I think I said this the, the first time we talked about it, that there is nothing in this story, I think this is kind of what you're talking about, that for, like, the equivalent of a Persona 4 Arena is they have the new character, Labyrinth, and her specific story in that game is really strong, really effective, and, like, really heartbreaking in a lot of different ways, that nothing in this game, like, reaches that sort of level. And I can't speak to Persona Q's story, but I imagine it has something similar Persona to Persona Q is on that Labyrinth level. Yeah. It's fantastic with those characters and stuff, yeah. Yeah, so this is more like Arena Ultimax, which, like, is a fun story, has, like, solid writing, is very funny at certain points, and is appropriately dramatic at other points, but never had, like, hits this, like, real high. Because I think at some point, like, the structure of the story maybe, like, doesn't even really afford it. And so it's something where... Like you said, like it's something if you're expecting it to like really go for it in the story department, it's disappointing. But if you understand that they like just approach it with the perspective of like, I mean, th th there's a world in which this game doesn't have a story mode at all. You know, right. there's and there's a world in which like it has a story mode that is just like thrown together and is complete shit. And this is like 
it's a story mode where they don't completely go for it, but they go for it far more than you would normally expect a game like this to do this. I mean, you would never expect a game like this to do this at all. No, generally. And absolutely. I am so glad the story mode was here. I was happy to play it. There was no point where I was like, I want to go replay Metal Gear Solid Five or something. <laughs> <I> which mean, <laughs> That which would, would be, be a really yeah. true, like, drastic situation you'd find yourself I, I know. In. Um... If you haven't heard, we dislike Metal Gear Solid yeah. Five. We're the two people on the internet who dislike that game. Yeah. Uh, anyway, but yeah, I mean, you know, I'm just saying like this was a B plus to me when maybe I wanted an A minus. I know I'm kind of looking at Gift Horse in the mouth. Yeah, but... yeah. I mean, it's definitely something where, for me, like my my perspective on this game is like it is just this really happy celebration of like Persona 4 and those characters in that world, and like kind of ascending off to them as we look forward to Persona Five, and who knows, like if we're going to keep on doing Persona 4 character stuff like maybe we will maybe we won't but this just felt like it was let's get the gang back together let's have some fun like let's just dance literally like let's just start dancing and let's have some fun with it and with that kind of story I think that that allows some stuff that's really endearing and, and really like heartwarming which is like all the Nanako stuff but it doesn't I feel like let you quite get to like, this game does go to dark places, but it doesn't go to, like, the depths that most Persona games go to in terms of, like, where they're willing to go to, like, really hit emotional cores. No, know? and I, you know, based on what you just said, like, it's a celebration of Persona 4, and this is what I was going to say, is my theory. I do think if I had not played Persona Q, I absolutely would have liked this more, because the problem is Persona Q, even more than I think the other Persona spinoffs, just went so far above and beyond. It's a full 80-hour story. I thought it dragged on a little too long, but that was more on the gameplay side than the story, and I think if you view that game as a celebration of those characters, which it absolutely is, that one gets to just give even more substance to it. Like, there's, you know, an hour-long subplot you do with Marie in that game that is every inch as good as the Marie stuff in Persona 4 Golden. And there's little stories for Naoto and stuff like that that are just so, so brilliant and beautiful that that's kind of where I'm comparing it, just in my immediate right. Persona history. And I don't think that's a completely fair comparison. It's just like, if you take these two games of having kind of similar goals and just being a celebration of the, the the world, maybe I was a little tired out from Persona Q playing this one. Um, but no, it still does some of these things well. I will say one thing I don't like about this one, and I definitely did not like about the time I played Persona 4 Arena and is actually what kind of turned me off of maybe continuing with it. I don't like how they handle you in these games. Sure, yeah. He's, I think he's bland. They make him super bland, and I think they make him a little too vocally active in the story. And I think Persona Q actually handled it really well, because he's not a silent protagonist in that one, and they still do... I guess you do name him in that one, but he still he will speak once in a while. Yeah. Um, but they keep like his level of lunacy in that, and I think it was a good kind of just middle ground of him still feeling like the guy I played in Persona 4 Golden. Here he feels like kind of just a bland guy who I don't feel I know all that well, because I think the things that defined him are kind of not there anymore. Uh, and I also think getting as much as we do of like his perspective and the first-person narration, I don't find it interesting with you. The chapters you get in here from Risei and Konami, I think I love that device. Because I think Risei is super fun to have with that. And then Konami, being the new character, it's very revealing and good yeah. on that level. Um, but when it's with you, those are the stretches of the game I definitely felt dragged the most. I agree with you. It's it's definitely it's a problem with the Persona 4 Arena games. That, like, it's something where... It's like, because they put him back into, like, this sort of normal protagonist role, it's like he does become... He feels more like a default protagonist. 
whereas like the requirements of where like where you became a character was in the anime version of Persona 4. And when that happened, like the requirements of that are you have to do something kind of crazy with him. It's the same thing with the Persona th- uh, 3 movies. It's like you can't have him be a bland character like because so much of the story revolves around this character and says things about this character. It's like you need to do something with him. And so their answer with that in Persona 3 is the movies is obviously to like give him this like dramatic character arc and really delve into who this person is. Their answer to that with Persona 4, the animation, was we're going to make this guy the coolest craziest motherfucker on the planet who just like takes everything like a hundred times more seriously than he needs to and that is basically like what he is in the animation and it's amazing it's amazing and i totally still feel that characterization in how they have him dance yes and because is... he's the best dancer yes like he is he has all the best dances in the game and that's a disconnect for me because He's, he's a little overly sincere and stuff in the main story, and then he gets out on that stage and dances, and I would rather he say something like, fucking crazy before you cut to dance, rather than, friendship is magical, yay, or whatever. Yeah, the, it's something where I, I see why, like, and it's the same thing with the Persona 4 Arena games, that, like, it's hard to find room for that character to be yeah. who that character needs to be, I guess. It's, 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 a, it's definitely a flaw like, that they've, they've run into with, with most of these spinoffs. But it's one that I guess I'm able to overlook because I don't think like it's like it's too over encompassing. Because at the end of the day, like you's not actually the narrator for most of the story. He's just the narrator for like the beginning part of the story mostly, and then when it shifts to economy, like she's actually the meat of it, really. Yeah, and the Konami stuff I think is generally good. Again, I have a problem where I just think most of the scenes just were a little too verbose, and maybe there were you know a couple backs and forths I didn't always need that over like little over exposition once in a while. But good stuff with Konami. I love the characters you get there, like the dance coach. I yeah. love the relationship between her and um, cop uncle. Uh, Dojima? Dojima, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. Anyway, yeah. Um, I'm a little disappointed he doesn't still have his coat he's hanging over his shoulder. Yeah, just like with his two fingers and like a cigar yeah. or a cigarette in his mouth constantly. Yeah. Maybe, you know, because he's going to the city and he's with Naoto or Naoto, Nahoko, Nanako. All the time. I'm having a rough night. Anyway, yeah. Nanako all the time. He doesn't want to have smoke in her face the whole time. Yeah, that's but, true. Yeah. Maybe he's become, like, maybe, like, secondhand smoke, like, warnings have, like, finally gotten to him. It's like, yes. maybe I should be smoking around my, like, six-year-old daughter constantly. Yes. But anyway, uh, no, he's a really, I think he's actually, of the returning characters, they use him really well. I mean, he is, it's, he has the best character introduction because it's just like some crazy motherfucker is going after Konami with a knife because he's just like this insane fan. And he just walks into the room and lays the dude out and arrests him. It's like in like five seconds. It's the most amazing thing. It is, and I just love... Like, he is John McClane in this story. Basically, He's a yeah. normal cop who comes to the city just to have fun with his daughter and his nephew, and he gets swept up in this giant case, and once again... It's not something he can really affect, but he has to do the legwork anyway because he's yeah. a good guy. And he does have, like, honestly, of like of the main persona for characters, he kind of has had, like, the most character development post-Persona 4 in the sense that, like, I feel like if they, if they do one more thing, like, one more big Persona 4 new story thing, like, Dojima is going to have to just be, like, become, like, Mulder or something. Like, he's going to have to... Because he's slowly becoming more acclimated to, like, the crazy paranormal shit that's going on. Where, like, in this game, he's obviously not fully buying into it. But he's clearly, like, become more accepting of it because, like, 
you know, like, he knows, like, Adachi has told him repeatedly through his confessions the, all the TV shit. Like, he knows all that stuff, He but just doesn't necessarily believe it yet. And the more this stuff stacks up in, like, the Persona 4 Arena games, and then this of, like, him being tangentially involved in all this crazy paranormal shit... Like, he is slowly, like, kind of buying into it, but never fully, like, admitting that he is, you know? He started as Scully, and he's becoming Mulder. Basically, yeah. Yes. Which is actually, that's basically what Scully, Scully did yes. over the course of the X-Files, but yeah. Yes, so... He's great. He's great. Nanako, I, what more is there to say? She becomes a dancing prodigy overnight. Yeah. And it's... That whole side of it is played so well. Yeah. It's, it's great. And, like, her... And it's such a great pairing of her and Konami that, like, it allows... I feel like that's when I was able to actually, like, kind of get into the Konami character and, like, figure out, like, okay, who is this person? Because I wasn't quite sure what they were going with with her earlier on when she has, like, her few scenes in kind of, like, the prologue section. Right. But, yeah, but then once, like, she pairs up with Nanako, I think they feed off of each other really well. Well, let's talk about that, like, what we think of Konami before you get into her own stuff because I was talking about this with you like a week ago yeah. when I had kind of was halfway through the story and at that point you still have only seen glimpses of Konami and I totally thought she was the killer I'm like yeah. because from what you see in the world and, and from the mystery I'm like that totally seems like it could work and I was kind of right in the end yeah it, but when you cut back to Konami you're made to think that's impossible because she's a normal nice girl yeah but then like slowly like crazy so, shit starts happening yeah and, yeah. Like, and the yeah. layers are torn back and I figured it out you know once she started having those headaches, definitely. Yeah. But um, I think there's... I definitely do think the mystery is actually really well done in this mm -hmm. one. Yeah, I agree. Again, I thought the ending was slightly underwhelming. It, God did it. Yeah, but... it's like... I mean, it has the same problems that the Persona 4 ending has. That's yeah. like... Persona 3 is still, like, the only, like, Japanese story I've ever seen that actually pulls off the giant deity comes out at the end. And, like, that's what it's all about. Like, like... So many things basically boil down to that, and it it always, like, you know, it doesn't always just completely fall flat. Like, I enjoy the Persona 4 ending, but it's never as fulfilling as it could be. And Persona 4 does have the other thing, though, where it also has a Dachi who is a... Yeah, it has, like, the... He is a goal also, yeah. and that mystery leads to him, and that's all satisfying before you get yeah, to Dachi. Yeah, because he's the much more, like, interesting villain. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, I think along the way, though, you have characters like Miss Ochimizu and Inoue-san, who I just thought from, like, general narrative mechanics probably couldn't be the villain. I was holding out for Inoue being the killer for a little bit. I didn't think it was going to be him, but I thought that would be so amazing because he's been in the Persona 4 Arena games a little bit. Like, if you okay. play the Risei story of Ultimax, you see quite a bit of him because Ultimax kind of sets up dancing all night. And so there's a part of me of, like... It should just be him. Like, they should totally make it know it. Like, that would be so out of nowhere. It'd be fantastic. Yes. Um, I guess I, you know, they probably assume that would be a little hacky, and it yeah, totally it would, would be. It would be. It would be a yeah. bad choice, but it'd be really funny if they yeah. did it. And then I thought Miss Ochimizu was a great character. Yeah. I mean, honestly, this game's, like, just number of... I don't think it has any, like, great new characters, but just in solid good new characters... They went like four or five, six for six. Yeah. If you think of the four Konami Kitchen Girls, Konami herself and Miss Ochimizu, they're all great. Yeah. They're really fun to have around. And I think the individual stories you get early on with the different Konami and Kitchen Girls are very well done. Yeah, I agree. Like, that's sort of, yeah, that whole, like, sort of beginning section of the game. Like, I guess kind of the first half where you are going through all the girls and basically doing, like, Persona 4 in, like, fast-forward mode or something where it's right. like you're just constantly having these encounters where they are... They're not, like, facing their shadows necessarily, but, like, the, the weird voice is basically taking the place of their individual shadows and, like, revealing... 
it's sort of like doing this deep dive in the Risei storyline of Persona 4 of just like taking apart like all these different like archetypes and personality roles that the media assigns these pop idols of like okay she's the sexy one and she's like like the cool kind of tomboy one and she's the cute small one and she's the funny one it's the stuff that like doesn't fully resonate with me because I'm not part of that I don't care about like that kind of like more modern pop music but it is something that like I am sort of tangentially aware of the ways that like music studios do manufacture these identities for their pop groups of like you know they put out like these magazine interviews and stuff like that of I mean, you know, my touchstone is, like, I think about when people were talking about, like, the Backstreet Boys. It's, like, I don't know anything about the Backstreet Boys, but, like, I'm sure, like, all those people have, like, that specific image, that specific identity, and, like, that specific, like, personality that they project, that persona, literally, that they project on stage is a character that has been created for them by the studio to make them successful. Well, exactly. Lance Bass is an effeminate gay man. I mean, yeah, yeah. It's, that's it's, people yeah, did it's, not know that when he was part of the Backstreet Boys. He could only do that, like come out literally after that group dissolved. I like that you know more about the Backstreet Boys than I do because I can't speak about any of this at length. Oh well, Lance Bass just like he shows up on shit now. Okay, yeah. yeah. Anyway, but yeah, it's it's definitely so. Even though I'm not super invested into that world, like. This, it's kind of the same thing with, like, dancing in general. Like, this does enough to sort of pull me into it enough that it's, like, I'm kind of... It's made me interested in it in a very, like, academic sense of, like, it's, this deep dive into the, the construction of pop identities is really fascinating, I think. It, it is very well done. Yes. Um, mostly. And here's one of my other complaints. Okay. I think all the stuff with the first four Economy and Kitchen Girls, I agree with all of that. I kind of thought they dropped the ball with Economy herself in the end. Sure. Because I think they super just let the exploitation of this system off the hook at the end that it's okay because the fans actually love you what that scene made no sense that was gibberish at the end where it's she's up there on stage with the ribbons and then the fans are being dicks and then they decide not to be dicks that yeah, i was... guess it's kind of i mean it's a it's a problem with trying to tell the story of like you can't you can't solve that problem you can't, but you can... They sure as hell addressed it when you I come mean, to yeah, Risei I guess, and the like, other four. For me, like, it's something where... I guess, like, what they're kind of trying to get at is her sort of moving on from being this manufactured pop identity. I mean, it's like what all of them are is trying to not be this manufactured pop identity and be, like, a legitimate musical artist. And, like... I mean, that's the whole thing with the Calisthesia song of, like, doing the original lyrics and talking about, like, these real problems that you're feeling and, like like, trying to convey this, like really heartfelt message instead of just being the like let's put this song through the like the machine and have it pop out with like this like really catchy pickup and like just bubbly lyrics that don't really make any sense and don't mean anything and that's like I don't think the game goes all the way there I agree with you but I do th I, I think it goes further than you're giving it credit for yeah maybe I, I thought the game spent an awful lot of time throwing the word bonds around without any significant payoff on that yeah, I mean, I think it's also it's it's a like I think it's kind of a problem in translation that that word bonds I, totally it is but... doesn't work in English the way that like kizuna is the word in in Japanese it's like and that means something culturally much more significant in Japanese than like there's no there's no word for it in English I guess no and I totally. I, I'm not blaming it for that yeah. because I could tell right away that was a translation. I mean, issue. yeah, I mean, Love Meets Bonds Festival is like the most awkward thing. Like, I am all for like really straight localization, but there was a point where I was like, they maybe should have just come up with a different name for this thing. Like, that was not trying to get to 
Yeah. Because, I mean, it's just, it's a literal translation of, right. of the I, name in, yeah, yeah. I, I meet Skizuna. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, it's a tough thing to know what to say about. I just thought, like, I liked this, when they, the, the part with the fans, I thought they bungled. I yeah. did like the thing with the Konami Kitchen girls, and them all realizing, we thought we had no one, and we have each other. And it's not saying we were friends, it's saying we could be friends. That's yeah. a good piece of writing. Like, we could strive to be friends in the future, that's what Persona is all about. Yeah. I did find that, like, that was an interesting thing that, like, I don't, if I had written the story, I don't think I would have thought of, like, none of these people actually really know each other and are friends that are in that band. Right. And it's like, it is your, like, outside, that's one of the places where the game kind of got me, is that your outside perspective of it is like, of course all these people are friends, and it's like, because that's the whole thing. It's like, because they're all giving interviews together and look how happy they are. And, but, like, no, like, that's not their relationship at all like they barely know each other they're co-workers you know right exactly so yeah good stuff there I you know I definitely uh, what, what did you think about the Calistegia song itself I like it okay. I like it a lot yeah like I like especially because like so much of the game has this like I mean it's music that I really like I really like the remixes but like the nature of a remix most of the time is to like make the song bigger, you know? And that's, like, some of the remixes don't do that. Like, the Heaven remix kind of, like, brings the song down more. But most of the remixes are, like, you know, they, like, like really, like, pump the song up. And so, like, then you have Calisthesia. The thing I like about Calisthesia is it, like, takes it all the way back and is just, like, it is, like, four people playing instruments and, like, one girl singing, you know? Like, that's, yeah. it's just, like, it's not an amazing song, but I don't think, it's almost kind of, like, not supposed to be an amazing song, I guess. Except if you think of how much time they spend building it up, and then it's... The lyrics aren't completely bubbly, but the song itself is. So I do I wasn't wowed by it in the way I thought the game was building to. But it's good. It's fun. Yeah, I, like, I, I guess, like, when they say this, like, it's not supposed to be that good of a song, is that I feel like... Because, like, ostensibly, it is just, like, performed by Konami herself, and there's something about it that, like... I guess the thing I like about the song is that the song feels very earnest. Which is, I think, what it, that's what it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be like this really amazing song. Yeah. It's supposed to feel like the song that this 16-year-old girl is performing without like the full force of the studio behind her kind of thing. I get that. I, here's my disappointment with Calisthesia. Okay. Not related to the song. You do unlock a chart version of it you can play. Yes. They yeah. don't have you do it over the end credits. I, what yeah. the fuck was up with that? I, I agree. I found that very... Strange that maybe it's something where they want you. The only reason I can come up with it is that they want you to actually like have like the credits be like visible and legible. Well, I completely thought they were going to have you play it on stage, like that would be oh, the last yeah. scene too. And I'm saying even if they didn't do that, that they had the chart version ready with the credits, they could have at least done that. So, well, I mean, yeah. but like if you play that version, the credits don't actually play over the version if you play. That's it true. In three that's days, true. So yeah, yeah, I don't know. Like I agree. I think it would have been. Way better, like, because I think it would actually have been way cooler if you were just playing it over the credits and playing it on stage, because it's not a song, it's not a dance song. Is yeah. the other thing about it, because it's also like five minutes long, right. so it's like, I yeah, it would not fit the way that the rest of the other songs are. Yeah, like I God, I love Nevermore, but then you play like this full six minute, you know, yeah, it is not it's it's too long for that. Yeah, it's way too long for the mechanics of the game. Because I failed it like at the very end too, and yeah. I haven't tried it again. Yeah, this game can be pretty harsh with that stuff. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so what else do we want to say about the story? Like any particular moments or things you want to pick out? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think I've, I've you know uh, the animated cutscenes I think are really really they're well done. really good. Like I think it's 
they keep on getting better with every Persona game that they make, and it's, like, making me really excited for Persona 5, where I think they've always been well, like, directed, but I think the quality of the animation in Persona 3 and Persona 4 in those cutscenes wasn't, like, great. Like, it was fine. They're getting more money, is yeah, the thing. Yeah, but, like, yeah. Now it's, like... I mean, it looks like a high-quality animation that you would see in, like, a televised anime series, you know? Like, it's... Even maybe quality. a step up from yeah, that maybe for some, even, yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, like, of, like, a high-quality, like, right. premiere anime. Not yeah. episode six of Dragon Ball Super. Yeah, not Dragon Ball Super. I mean, like, one that they made, like, 13 episodes for and, like, dumped their yeah. whole budget into. Yeah. And I say specific episodes, because Dragon Ball Super, up and down and up and down and roller coaster of animation, which, you know what, is exactly what Z was. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, it's it's the nature of, like, I mean, like, all of those yeah. shows, like, the really long-running ones have that yeah. quality problem. No worries. All right, um... Speaking of which, hey, you know, Resurrection F, I've got the Blu-ray coming Tuesday. Nice. If you want to watch that, we can talk about it on the show next week. Totally. I've been really wanting to watch that for a while now. Let's do it, yeah. Yeah. So, Blu-ray on Tuesday. Anyway, um, I'm I'm just excited to see it again, because it was so good. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, where were we? So, I think that's it for the story. Definitely a thumbs up. I don't want to sound too negative. Yeah, it's it's definitely, it's not a story, it's not something that, like, you can just give it, like, uh, like an A++, like, this is the most amazing thing ever. But again, like, especially if you look at it from the perspective of, like, I mean, what, what rhythm game has a story mode? Like, just think about that. Like, anytime there's been, like, a mild attempt in, like, Guitar Hero or Rock Band or something, it's, like, the most little, like, hey, guys, we went, we we're a garage band. Now we're playing at a cafe. Yay. Now we're playing at a bigger cafe. Now we're playing at a bigger cafe. Now we're at a stadium. Yay! We're Some, rock stars. Somehow we got here with only covers. Yeah, exactly. We've never written any original music. And some of these covers aren't even that good. Yeah. yeah. Um, but one other thing I do want to say about the story. I do love just how seriously the writers of this yes. game okay. took the, the conceit of they have to dance. Because, again, I think there's a little too much exposition at points. But you know what? They had to come up with a story device whereby it makes complete and total sense that the only way to beat the shadows is to dance. And they took that, like, missive and ran with it. And that element is a kind of mad genius. Yeah, and it's like, it is, if you, like, buy into the Persona lore in general, I think it's a totally legitimate explanation. Like, it... Again, like, it sounds like complete fucking nonsense if you hear it without context, but playing the story mode, it's like, when you find out, it's like, yeah, okay, we need to can't dance because we can't fight these shadows, which is all, that reminds me of, like, one of my favorite lines of the game when Kanji's like, yeah, let's go kick these shadows out. Oh, wait, we can't. Let's go dance some sense into these shadows. That's, like, there's, so they get some really good humor out of it. But yeah, the, the fact that they have to dance to convey their feelings to the shadows and that's the way to sort of liberate them in the in the lore of persona that makes perfect fucking sense to me that they are trapped in this zone created by an ancient slumbering deity that has these like specific rules and to get around that you know sometimes you just got to dance it's that side of it is is just great yeah and it is really convenient that all the cast of persona 4 had just been training to dance to be at this festival yeah. it's just it's really perfect that, like, they just happened to be, like, getting ready to help Risei to be at this festival right when all this crazy shit with this god and the, like, economy's shadow is going on. To be fair, there's a lot of convenient things that happen yes, in yeah. the Persona That's verse. not a criticism. That's, yeah, like, that's okay. just me poking fun because all yeah. stories have that. Right. Um, one other thing, just to note, for the English dub is we're at a point where a lot of the actors from, we'll just say Golden as the benchmark, yeah. have been recast. Yeah, and, and if the, you're going to the original Persona 4, like, almost all of them have been. Yeah, and 
I mean, the big one here is Laura Bailey has been replaced, and I think that one hurts just because it is Laura Bailey, and she was so great as Risei. Yeah, and and it's it's the Risei game, basically. I mean, yeah. it's actually the economy game, but like ostensibly, it's about her, like with like dancing all night. It's, she's the pop idol. Yeah, it's her concert. But I thought the voice actress who replaced her. I want to be fair. I think she did a great job as a replacement. Like I think. Yeah. She definitely stepped up to the plate and did as good as I think anyone could ever do replacing a giant like Laura Bailey. Just like I think the guy who's replaced Kanji, really good job. It's still not the same. Yeah, it's not quite as good, but it's not as bad as it could be. It's it's, it's a good performance. And if you didn't have Laura Bailey's performance to compare it to, I think it would be like as good a performance as kind of like any that you would expect. But Yeah. yeah, Laura Bailey definitely like goes above and beyond kind of in everything she's a, like a really premier voice actress but I think in particular her performance as Risei has always been spectacular well it's just it's a Call of Duty thing with that if you look at like Rie Kugayama who plays yeah. her in Japanese and that's just a that's a great voice actress in Japan who does yeah. all sorts of things and she's yeah, an iconic voice actress yeah and tremendous in Persona 4 I think um, yeah so yeah definitely there's there's a legacy there and you know just a lot of them have been recast Naoto uh, got recast with Persona Q I think although probably no the Arena games too right uh, she the original Naoto is in Persona 4 Arena 1 but not in Ultimax okay I didn't know where that switch happened um, I like replacing... nobody knows because the, the voice actress who plays Naoto is some like mystery shadow ninja lady yeah that's... And no one knows I mean the people know her name the people that need to know her name know her name but like it's never been put out there which no. I always find fascinating yeah it's uncredited so we know the name of the new actress but not the old one and I think the replacement is good that's the one that feels the most different to me yeah um, and that's actually like compared to Arena Ultimax this is the game that like I don't like her as much as original Naoto but this sold me on her a lot more than Arena Ultimax and I didn't obviously play Q so I don't know a whole lot about her performance there but she definitely sold it in Q because Q has a part where you solve a mystery with Naoto right. and that's the ultimate test right yes but, yes yeah. uh, she's got some good exposition here too where she gets to do that and it's fine so it's just it's interesting I mean it does feel at a certain point like a game of Russian roulette where they if you recast enough you're going to hit a bad bullet at some point yeah. and they haven't so good job <laughs> yeah it's definitely something where you know like the original dub for Persona 4 was 7 years ago yeah. and most of those actors if they weren't like well known at the time like Troy Baker was not particularly well known at the time like and I don't think Laura Bailey really was either back in 2008. She's like, big in anime, but not in games. Yeah, but like, yeah, now... I mean, cause just because like the landscape of voice acting in video games has changed so much over the, like, the past five years in particular that like the, the, the dawn of Nolan North as like a video game celebrity has like just changed that landscape to where it's very understandable that, that some of these really premier voice actors and actresses are not available for this game just because the schedules don't work, link up, you know? Yeah, and there's, there's a lot of voice work in these, too. It's, yes, yeah, it seems like it's a significant commitment. But clearly, whoever directs the voice work at Atlas USA can do no wrong. They yeah. just, they're really good. They are as good as, like, Square Enix is bad. Yeah, their exactly, jobs. yeah. I mean, it's something where, and, like, and I think this game in particular threw them some real fucking rough balls with, like, I mean, stuff like the Bond stuff that's just, like, it's so hard to translate that stuff and, like, get it to mean something... That I don't think they're completely successful with it, but I don't think there is a way to be completely successful with it. And there's a bunch of different ways to go at it, and all of them are legitimate. And it's just something where it's like you need to be understanding as an audience anytime you're like getting something that is translated to be like, sometimes this is just not going to work, and you're just going to have to give it. Like, you're just going to have to accept what I'm telling you even if you're not fully feeling it because it doesn't resonate with the language. And at the end of the day, I would much rather they have their super accurate, you know, rule yeah. and sometimes get 
screwed by it than not have that yeah. because we're so lucky to you know have all like the honorifics in there, which are such a huge part of it. Like yeah. when Konami starts calling Nanako Nanako-san, yeah. that is a big deal. And yeah, like, it's like it's a plot point. It is like yeah. a character moment. Like it is something that is significant. And no one else includes that stuff. And it's a crime. If most of the time it would be like the most like awkward, I'm going to start calling you Miss Nanako then. It's like, right. this is just, you don't... That's do like that. a pet name for your slave yeah, or something. Weird. Yeah. And I have to give credit. This is like, I was just like playing this with so much Nanako just reminds me. So you have to give so much credit uh, to Wendy Lee who plays Nanako, who also the voice actress who plays the guess. Which I will never be able to reconcile. Yeah. That she is still the only voice actress for any, like, Japanese translated into English thing that is able to sell calling someone big bro all the time. That, like, because yes. that's, it's such a thing in Japanese that you would call, like, your, I mean, if you literally, if you have an elder brother, like, you are smit to address them at, like, in a way that, like, recognize them as the elder brother. Like, it is a cultural thing. Like, son. Yes. And so, like, it's something where it's, like, it's such a hard translation trick and usually they go for something like just calling him Big Bro, which does not convey anything like Onichan that does in Japanese, except for she somehow does it. I don't know what it is. She fucking nails it. It is like, it's incredible. She's talented. Yeah. See, I guess, for further reference. Yeah. Big Bro. All right, enough about the story. I do want to move on, so let's just talk a little bit about the gameplay. All right. We've already talked about the kind of the systems and how good they are. Yeah. The dancing is great. I don't think we need to say anything more on that, really. Yeah, I guess I'm curious about like how how deep have you gotten into like the free dance stuff? Okay, I um, I I don't know if I can play these on hard. That's okay, what I'll say. Yeah. That's I did totally fair. I did want to unlock the like special extra story, so I did them all on normal to make sure I got through that. Right. Yeah. And I had fun with that because I think one thing I want to praise here is. I think if you play Guitar Hero or Rock Band, those games aren't really fun to me on anything but Expert. I think on Easy or Normal, and to a certain extent Hard, they're just kind of dull. And with this, I think on Easy and Normal, this is still fun. Like, this is still yeah. intense. It doesn't feel like you're sacrificing quality for difficulty, and I think that's a really cool thing they've done. Uh, so it wasn't like I had less fun playing it on Normal, but I did want to kind of rush through those to get done for the podcast. I'm going to try some more on Hard. I can't really figure it out because I've had runs where I miss like two notes total and I still don't make it. I really don't know how you clear them. I mean, it's something where because the game is not super upfront with how the systems work specifically with how you like clear like get a brilliant rating or not. But it's something where okay, I mean, literally, if you just like want to like like see if you're getting near the end of the song and whether or not you're going to make it or not, you have like the five dancing I know that stuff, things. Yeah. yeah, if they're green, you clear. If you're, it's not green, you don't clear. Like right. that's the literal indicator but yeah like streaks are very important and it's like missing a, and if you miss a couple of notes in a row like if you miss like five notes in a row you just you fail the song you know so yeah it's it can be pretty brutal with that stuff and it's not always clear how well you're doing and yeah it's 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 a weird it's a hard problem because it's it's very difficult to convey that kind of information to the player in a way that is not going to be intrusive to this very fast paced like hectic like you have to move at the game's pace, not your own pace kind of gameplay, you know? Yeah, and I've beaten a couple songs on hard. Like, I beat Specialist on hard, but it took a lot of tries. And I had to, like, at a certain point, just memorize the note chart. And that's an easy song. So, yeah. I just don't know. I, I just don't know if my brain is wired for it. But the one thing I will say is that I won't feel like I got gypped by this game yeah. if I don't get to play it on hard. And in other games, I would say that's a flaw. And I don't think it is here because I don't think they've left, like, lower-level players behind. Yeah, and actually one of the things that's interesting about the game, because I have platinumed the game, I actually platinumed it a while ago, nice. 
And the Platinum is not difficult to get because you don't need to... I mean, it makes it a lot easier to get the Platinum if you're able to, to clear uh, songs on hard because it gets you a lot more money, and that's important. But to get the Platinum, the game does not ask you to clear all the songs on hard or to clear all the songs on all night difficulty. Right, and I think I am going to try to Platinum yeah. it. So yeah, like, and that's and one thing I would recommend to you, Jonathan, is looking at uh, like the items you can buy from the store that can modify your difficulty. If you're having trouble with hard, some of those items will make it so that like you can like clear songs and you're not going to get all the benefit from it, but like you'll be able to like make progress and maybe get used to. Because the thing that happens is with like hard and all night, whenever the difficulty ramps up, it's not just like you're hitting more stuff. They're asking you to do more complicated things that you have never seen before. And that's, I think, the hardest part to deal with is, like, it's just asking you to do things you haven't encountered and having the flexibility to approach that is, like, it takes a lot of time to play these games to acquire. Because I also have a lot more practice because I played one of the Hatsune Miku games, so I kind of right. had that going in. Yeah, I've used a couple of the items, and I'm, it's just like that general thing. I was kind of rushing for the podcast. Right. But I look forward to just having, like, a month where I play it on and off and can just experiment with all that. I think... Like, there's a whole another like, world of the game I'm still excited to get into, which is just yeah. enjoying and kind of living with the songs and costumes. Because I've done a couple of, you know, just buying costumes and experimenting with all that, and it's a really fun subsystem in the game. Yeah. So, yeah. And then just, like, the songs are so fun to play, because they're such good remixes and they're such good animations, I feel like I could play these a lot of times and not get tired of them. Yeah. I have ones I like more than others, but that's inevitable. You know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So let's talk about that. Okay. What's your favorite remix in the game? Because I have mine. Um, I'm trying to think. Like, there's a lot that I really love. I really love the Best Friends remix that Chie dances to. That one's that really one's great. great. Yeah, uh, the Shadow World one with Nanako, I think, is fantastic. And the Heartbeat Heartbreak one with Nanako is also really good. Okay, my favorite by far. And I would say the one you said, the Chie one of Best Friends, is, is number two. Okay. Number one for me is Reach Out to the... Is uh, Time to Make History... The one Kanji dances to Yeah that was really good And I, I really like Time to Make History I forget if I had it In my top 20 Persona songs If I didn't That was an error On my part Because it wouldn't be In the top 10 But I do love that song I don't love it as much As Reach Out to the Truth But yeah. it is a great Battle song I think And they just ramped it up In a way that brings out This latent intensity To the song And that's what I think A great remix does Is yeah. like it makes you Look at the song In a new way I think that does that I totally agree with you On the other ones you named. Yeah. I also really love the Heaven one they do. The Heaven one's really good, yeah. yeah. Signs uh, of Love one is... I mean, almost all of them. The only one I don't hate it, but I don't love it that much is the Your Affection one I'm not super into. Yeah. I just feel it's it's a bit too busy. I do love the Signs of Love one. Like, my favorite dance in the game easily is Naoto's Signs of Love. Yeah. I, that one totally... And then I would probably put that Kanji one I mentioned under that. But I, it, overall, Naoto is my favorite dancer just because of the way she moves in this very jazzy kind of way. Yeah. And Heaven, I wouldn't have thought they would put Heaven with Naoto, but it works really well. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad they didn't put it with Nanako because it would have just been her crying. Yeah, because it was something, because like, I was wondering if they were going to do like the like Bond Fever like pair dance thing. I wonder if you, I was wondering, if, like, maybe you unlock Nanako for one of those. You don't. Which is like, and I was kind of like, oh, that's kind of weird because this is the Nanako song. And I was thinking, it's like, wait, this is the song where like that, that makes you realize how like depressing Nanako's life was in Persona 4. Maybe it's good that she stays away from it and just, yes. like, stays into happy Nanako zone. Although what I do love is when you start playing in free dance, they, like, they loosen up what characters you'll hear from and see. Yeah. And I especially love this one where I got a fever with you and Yosuke, Yosuke yes. and then Nanako says, is this what they call a bromance? <laughs> yeah, it's like, I know what this is. This is a bromance. It's like, yeah. That's a really good line. I've heard that one. That was great. Yeah. Um, 
Definitely the most awkward uses of the word partner come in this game, yeah. where Yosuke says, I couldn't ask for a better partner, or something yeah. like that. And then it's like, wow, those two are real partners. And it's like, at a certain point, you're really just suggesting that they're going to go in the back and fuck after this. Yeah, I mean, it definitely, yeah, like, you and Yosuke's relationship has gotten more intimate over the game. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, it's fine. Like, you know, I'm down with some Yosuke every once in a while, you know? <laughs> you need a palate cleanser. But At a certain point, like... The slash fic isn't even ridiculous. That's just the text of the game. Yeah. I mean, it is also, like, the other funniest part is that I think, like, on a technical level, the Yu-Yosuke pair dances are, like, the most impressive and kind of the best dances. Like, they are really well done. Like, my favorite ones are always the Nanako and Yu ones are really great because they're adorable. But, like, on just a, like, this is a really impressive, like, well-choreographed dance. Like, every, like there's just a couple of Yu-Yosuke pair dances. I was like, wow, this is, like, this is really cool. Yeah. But all of it, I mean, there's nothing subpar about any of the dancing. It's yeah. all so well done. Yeah, it's all, like, motion captured. It's all, like... I love that it's all very specifically tailored for the individual characters, and they all have different dance styles. And tailored to the songs, too. Yes. Which is so yeah. well. Yeah, and so it's, yeah, like, like... Yeah, because they create, like, a specific type of dance for, like... Yukiko has a lot of, like, ballet dance with a little bit of traditional Japanese dance thrown in there. It's kind of her style. And then they pick songs that fit that style like the Snowflake Tree mix and stuff and those are her songs and then Chie obviously has like like a kung fu fusion thing going on in her dances and they pick more like fast paced kind of happy quick songs to fit that it's, it's, yeah it's really well done across the board in a way that like I wasn't expecting to be really impressed by because I just like again I'm not someone who knows anything about dance so it's like I just didn't, it, it's like the actual reality of the dancing had never entered my consciousness before I played the game, and then you play the game, you're like, this is really impressive, well done stuff. That's, Absolutely. Yeah. Have you played the Marie or Adachi DLC yet? No. Okay. I didn't even realize that had come out. Yeah. They've both, those two have come out, there's one left, and it's Hatsune Miku. I can't necessarily recommend you buy these, because they're five bucks a piece, and it's for one song, and that is a terrible deal, but if you're a Persona fan, you're going to do it anyway. Yeah. So... Uh, the Marie and Adachi ones, I've gotten those, and the Marie one I love, and I'm really mad that song is not on the soundtrack. It mm. is so fucking good because it's a new song. It's called oh. "Break Out of." Oh, that's Wait, the uh, that that's on? that's the the ending credits music from Persona Four: The Golden Anime. Yeah. Well, shit, I didn't know that. So there you go. I need to get that. Okay, it's a good soundtrack. Yeah. Do you have that soundtrack? Yeah. Can I have it? Hey, Jonathan, remember that that top ten Persona songs list I made? Yeah. Remember what number ten was on it? Was it that song? Yes, it was that song. Ah, such a good song. And Marie, like that one, it's in the Disco Velvet Room, which is awesome. Right. And it's yes, Marie and yeah. Elizabeth, Marie and Margaret, and it's Marie and Elizabeth would be funny too, but it's Marie and Margaret, and it's really great, and it's tailored to Marie, and it's awesome, and it makes me wish Marie was actually in the game. Uh, because she's my favorite Persona 4 character. Yeah. But anyway, it's okay. And that one's great. The Adachi one, it's The Fog, and it's a remix of that. Huh. So that's cool, but I don't think they tailored it to Adachi as much. Like, your fever partner in that one is you, and he just comes out and they're kind of friendly. And they're, they, you could have done so much with that. Yeah. Of, like, they have to dance together and they're mortal enemies. Or they yeah. have that weird relationship they do in, like, the alternate ending stuff. Yeah. And <laughs> they don't really hint at any of that. And mostly it's just Adachi is, like, a little weird. And so that one was not as good. But. Yeah, I like, I don't know. Like, even, like, incorporating Adachi into the game at all seems kind of like a weird yes. decision. So, yeah. Uh, but the Marie one, I, I would say, definitely worth it. Uh, it's, it's, it's fantastic. Cool. Um, uh, worth it to a certain degree. Those should be $2 max. Five is ridiculous. But, yeah. 
And then I also paid for the anime openings and endings you can get. Right, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I hadn't even thought that Persona 4 The Golden had its own theme songs. Of course it does, but yes. yeah. Anyway, so I can get that song. That's great. I love that song. So, um, and that one's hard, too. So if you want to do yeah, the challenge, it's so, in yeah. there. Um, yeah, so the other DLC is kind of, it's costumes, it's just songs that play with animation over them, but you can still play with it, which is fun. So, but those are the only ones that have actual, like, mo-capped dances and stuff. And there is one more that's going to come out with Hatsune Miku, and I forget what song she's doing, but you get some Hatsune Miku in there, which should be cool. Yeah, which, like, I like, I remember seeing the trailer when they announced it, and it's really interesting seeing Hatsune Miku in, like, Soejima's, like, Persona 4 art style. It's, yeah. like, it's really appropriate for that character in a weird way yeah. that you wouldn't think about. But, yeah. Yep. And definitely as a just piece of, like, musical tribute, this game is a great tribute to the Shoji Meguro just music empire. Yeah. In, in a way that, like, you know, obviously I, it should just be Persona 4 music, but I wish, like, they're, like... Because a lot of the Persona 3 soundtrack doesn't necessarily lend itself to this as much as the Persona 4 soundtrack does, but there's, like, some that's, like, man... There would be there's some I would as, I'd like a DLC or something. Yeah, yeah. I guess dancing something. Mass destruction. Yeah. The uh the the like a remix of the remix album version. Yes. That'd be great. I cause I need another version of Mass Destruction in my life. Like it would be like the fifth version of Mass Destruction. Gosh. And that's not even a joke. Like I actually no. do. Yeah. yeah. I have lots. Uh let's see. So anything else to say with Persona 4 dancing all night? It's great. I love it. Like I think it's like we've talked about it enough on the podcast that anyone listening, if they don't if they haven't bought it yet, and, like, they know whether or not they're the person to buy this game, I guess. There's yeah. not much else to say about hey, I'll put it this way. My my PS Vita now lives in a Dancing All Night carrying case. So, yes, might as well. Yeah. And I'm going to get that Teddy keychain out. I just have a lot of keys I have to deal with. So, at some point, I'm going to use it. Yep. Definitely worth it. All right, so let's move on and talk about... This is just a positive podcast, man. Yes. We talk about some good stuff. Doctor Who Series 9... Episode 5, The Girl Who Died, written by Jamie Matheson and Stephen Moffat, and directed by Ed... He's got a cool name, and I thought I remembered it. He was in... He was the lead guitarist in the band that made that song, Turning Japanese. That is a weird-ass fact. Yes, I did not... I, like, there is a clip... I, I, ascribe, I subscribe to the Doctor Who YouTube channel, which you may be surprised to find out. <laughs> and there was, like, an interview, and they said that. Baglazette, like, oh, that's his name. Ed Baglazette. Uh, anyway... And, you know, weird-ass fact, for a weird-ass episode, that is a yeah. really good episode. It is a really good episode. Outstanding. I, I yes. think this is probably my favorite of the season so far. I, th- I, I would agree with you, yes. So, but let me hear your thoughts first. What did you think? Or uh, why? Like, yeah, like, it's a really, I just, like, because it's a comp, it's an episode that works on a lot of different web, web level, levels. It's, like, a really complex episode that doesn't seem like it at first. And I've watched it twice. Like, I just, like, immediately rewatched it as soon as I finished it the first time because I was so fascinated by it, especially the stuff that it does at the end that I just needed to watch it again and like the thing that's incredible about the episode is that it does so many different things and it does everything that it does really well so like one side of the episode is this like kind of fairly cliche but I think cliche on purpose Doctor Who story that is super goofy in the best way possible about the Doctor coming to this Viking village where yes of course the Vikings have horned helmets because it's canonical in Doctor Who this is not the first time he's met Vikings of course not. They have to have horn helmets or else it would be breaking canon. And when he's there, Odin, like Monty Python Holy Grail God style, pops out of the clouds and says, like, I'm going to take you fuckers to Valhalla. And so then what the episode then turns into for, like, the first two thirds is basically the doc. It's, it's Doctor Who Seven Samurai 
of training Vikings to fight space Vikings. That is the first two thirds of this episode. And if that is not, if that doesn't make you super excited, like I don't know who you are, because that is like the greatest like like elevator pitch for a Doctor Who episode ever. But like the other side of it is that it has that. And that's, like, goofy and fun and funny. And there are some, like, incredibly funny moments in this episode where it goes, like, weirdly slapstick in places that are fantastic. But then it also has this, like, like really, like, kind of devastating emotional core. And, and one of the most interesting sort of explorations and just, like, upfront explorations of the Doctor's character that the show has ever done. And it ends with... I think... A, th- and a thing where the Doctor, like, has to face up with, like, these themes... That have always been a part of the show, and the way this episode approaches it is in such an earnest way, and just goes for it, and does not sort of like step around it the way that that Doctor Who is kind of known for doing with this kind of stuff, and just fucking goes for it, and I th- and it sets up a second part, like the the next episode, which seems like that episode's going to be fucking amazing if they follow through on the promise of like how it's been set up, and so just all around this episode does. It does, like, funny, goofy Doctor Who better than almost any other Doctor Who episode. And it also does, like, dramatic character-based Doctor Who better than almost Doctor Who I've seen. I and, mean... like, it does that all in one, like, 40-minute episode. It's incredible. It's got Peter Capaldi's best scene on the show. Yes. I, I think, yeah. absolutely. I, it's And he's already got a lot of competition for that. Yes. But I think that's the scene in, in the, in the uh, kind of hut... Yeah, where we bring back the "Who frowned me this face" thing, yeah. and I think specifically all the stuff before that, where he's just kind of raging against fate. Yeah, uh, he is. I said this about Matt Smith for the three years he was the Doctor, and I think Peter Capaldi has inherited this. I think he's given the best performance on TV, and I don't know if you actually watch Doctor Who and other TV shows if you can really argue that because I think the range of stuff he is asked to do on a week to week basis just is is superior. And yeah, this episode. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. I think it is this great. Postmodern dissection of yes. what Doctor Who is yes, for definitely. 25 minutes and then it gets into it is still a postmodern dissection but it's a more character based one mm-hmm. and it's not like they are two distinct halves of the episode I think they work together yeah very they much. meld together very well yeah and at the same time I think it's snapping in some overall seasonal arcs where suddenly series 9 by being the loosest arc season of Modern Who is feeling like the tightest yes because of where they're going with things like they have been so, so subtle in how they've been dealing with Clara and the Doctor and their character arcs, and yet you get to this episode and where you start to feel that under, you know, neath everything snapping into place, it feels like Stephen Moffat really knows what he's doing this season in terms of how he wants these characters to move. Yeah. Because definitely. that's his job, and he's doing a fucking great job with it. Yeah. And it's like, and it is something where it's like, it's an interesting thing with this episode that you have the Jamie Matheson, who's he's kind of like the superstar from the last season because he's the guy who wrote Mummy on the Orient Express and Flatline, which were like, you know, he had never written an episode for Doctor Who before that, and those were two just phenomenal episodes of Doctor Who, and like that guy clearly understands Doctor Who in a very deep and interesting way, the same way that Stephen Moffat, I mean Stephen Moffat understands Doctor Who in a deep and interesting way, but from like different perspective, and like. I wonder, like, I really want to just, like, have, like, a documentary, like, an interview with both of them to find out, like, what the co-writing process was, because they're co-writers, they both have credit. It's like, I want to know, like, where, like, if there's, like, a clear split about, like, okay, this scene was a Stephen Moffat scene, or these lines are Stephen Moffat lines, or if, like, it was more of a collaboration, because it seems like it's a really fascinating combination. Usually how this thing works, because I've been thinking about this a lot, too, because Stephen Moffat did not used to take co-writer credits. Yeah. And... 
all showrunners have a different view on this. Like, if you don't know, in pretty much any model, modern model of this, the showrunner does co-write every episode in the sense that they bring it in and they edit it and they put their own spin on it. And different, you know, showrunners have different levels of invasiveness they go to it. And some will just put their name on every episode because of that. Um, or you'll have the Matthew Weiner model on Mad Men where Matthew Weiner would say if he rewrote less than 80% of the episode, that person could keep their name on the script. Otherwise, he would do it as a co-writing credit. And, and like uh, David Milch on Deadwood wrote pretty much every word of Deadwood, but he's only credited as a writer on a couple of them because he just wanted his writers to keep their credits. Right. So everyone has different ideas. And clearly Stephen Moffat was in the more hands-off crediting approach for a couple of years there. And then last season, he had a bunch of co-writer credits. So I don't know... If he just decided he was doing more and he wanted those credits, or if he's actually working with the writers, what I imagine it is is Jamie Matheson had an idea for a script and turned it in, and then Stephen Moffat maybe transformed it in some way to add those story elements. That's what it felt like last season. But this yeah. season, this episode is so those things are all so woven. It does feel like they worked on it together. Yeah, so it's exactly. Like know, it, it, it doesn't feel like because there's obviously there's the, the you know. There's the call-out moment that, like, flashes back to, like, the Tenth Doctor and stuff that feels very much like the showrunner wrote this part because, yes. like, that's what you do as a showrunner if you're making that direct callback. It feels like that's what it has to be. But I don't feel like... Th if it was just that, I don't think he would have put a co-writer credit on it. And, like, there are a lot of the other episodes that there are co-writer credits. There's, like, more extended moments that you feel like this has to be, like, the Stephen Moffat thing in this episode because of, like, what it is dealing with. Whereas I feel like, yeah, this it's it's really hard to pin that down, other than that one moment. Yeah. So it would be fascinating to hear about that. And it's almost too bad we don't get that Doctor Who making of show anymore. Yeah. That was that confidential. Yeah. That died after like what, season five? Uh I think season six. Season, oh, season right. six definitely had it because the doctor's wife one is really good. Right. I remember that. Um, so anyway. But yeah, um oh God, where do we even start with this one? Let's start with the funny side. Okay, yeah. I did think the opening scene was outstanding with Clara yeah. out in space. I really like this, like, modern trend, because season 8 did a lot, too, of, like, starting, like, at the end of a previous adventure, because it's something where I've been, like I said earlier, I've been re-watching some really old Doctor Who, like, William Hartnell stuff, and it, made, like, it kind of made me miss those days of that, like, like, the new story, like, if you're not watching them all in sequence and you just, like, pick this new serial, that serial starts with the ending of the previous serial, which was the thing that, like, cursed me to watch all of Doctor Who, in the first place because I couldn't just like watch snippets I was like well I, now I need to watch if this has this connecting scene now I need to watch the previous episode that's like I need to go on going back until oh no now I'm watching 800 episodes of Doctor Who what's happened in my life but like it has that element of it where it's like you just get the very end of the previous adventure and then like there's a little bit of dialogue suggesting like what happened and then moving on from it and then you're like okay there's Vikings and now this story is happening I thought I don't know if that is an intentional thing, but it feels like very much that to me. It does, and I just think overall it's like we always know the Doctor has way more adventures than we see. Yeah. That's how you can have this rich history of novels and audio dramas. And to just bring a little slice of that into the show, yeah. I really like. And just acknowledge, yes, he's doing a lot of shit we don't see. He and Clara have a life outside of the show, and we're here for certain moments. And it's just, it's fun that way. Yeah, and it does open it up that like you don't, half the problem of like old like classic Doctor Who of like people being like okay now where now we've like Big Finish just released this short story so it's like where does this fit in into the fifth Doctor's timeline and, da, 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 and it's like yeah. it's so impossible to construct that because it's not built to be that way that it's nice to have like gaps where you feel like 
you know, so that way you feel like when when Peter Capaldi's run comes to an end eventually, that he wasn't only like that doctor didn't only live for like three to five years or something. That right. was like, no, he had this like full lived life that had all these other adventures that you just weren't uh, privy to. Yes, which is definitely something I think they've done a great job with with the modern doctors. Yes, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of space for that. Um, you know, I imagine. Especially with Matt Smith, because Stephen Moffat just built in there. The Eleventh Doctor goes off for a hundred years and does random shit. Yeah. And there's whole seasons missing and stuff. I yeah. love that. Uh, anyway, so you get that, and then you get into the main action of the episode. And again, this postmodern deconstruction that is a, still a good story in and of itself. But as you say, it is so zany. And when I said it was a weird-ass episode, I was sitting there for the first 15 minutes not even sure how to like react to it because it goes so crazy so fast. Yeah. I mean it's whiplashy at the beginning and I ultimately came down like that's intentional. That's yes. totally what it's supposed to be. But it definitely I think it's meant to kind of put you out of balance at first because yeah. you meet the Vikings and immediately you meet Monty Python Odin and then immediately Clara's on the spaceship and then immediately Maisie Williams has declared war. Like the space viking just drank a like test tube of fucking raw testosterone and it's yep. like that's really disgusting. So it's like one of the more extreme versions you could ever have of this kind of stock Doctor Who story. Yeah, it feels like like three episodes of a classic Doctor Who serial just happened in the span of like seven minutes, basically. And I wouldn't be surprised if you asked Jamie Matheson if that was his intent. Yeah, like I feel like like when I'm saying that, I mean that it's like it does feel deliberate. That it's yeah. like, because again, there are things about it that it's like, it is very conscious of the form and structure that Doctor Who takes and it's playing with that. I definitely thought back to like the Time Warrior, mm-hmm. uh, Third Doctor story, where really like the threat doesn't emerge until the end of the first episode, because that first episode is him getting to know the people there, and yeah. the second episode is getting to know the threat a little more, and I think that's a really well-paced serial, but it's a good example of this thing that, again, as you say, they smash into like yeah. seven minutes. Yeah. And then, really, after that point, it's all about interrogating the idea of what the Doctor is and what he does... And again, it's this point that we've been making on the show, and I still think I've seen some internet reviews are not coming around to it yet, that if you didn't have Clara in the place she was, you could not have told any of the stories this season. Yeah, I agree. At yeah. all. I mean, not even a little similarly. They would have had to be completely different, because you have not only that she is an established companion, but this established companion who seems to understand the Doctor in a much deeper way than someone like Rose, who understood David Tennant is hot. You yes. know, yeah. she understands. He's got really nice hair, right? And he does. He does. He has fantastic hair. Yes, no one can deny this. And that trench coat, yeah, it's dreamy. But I feel like she has a better understanding of the twelfth Doctor than Rose did of nine or ten. Yeah. So because of that, she can ask him the questions he needs and, frankly, wants to be asked. And he is in this introspective mode. Yeah. Where clearly the Doctor, it feels like he's in a midlife crisis this season. I mean, yeah, because it, and it totally does. I think that's completely on purpose because he has the more ratty costume with, like, the hood and stuff on. Yep. He's, like, playing guitar. He's breaking the fourth wall. Like, it's, he does all the things that one does when one has a midlife crisis. Like, he's trading in the sonic screwdriver for sunglasses. Exactly. Like, he's doing all these weird things because it feels like he's still not... Because that was kind of the thing that Series 8 very early on kind of introduced, but I don't think fully, like, went that far with it. I mean, that's, like, what Deep Breath was all about in kind of a really obnoxious way. It's like, who is the Doctor really thing? And I don't think that, like, Series 8 just kind of, like, didn't completely drop that plot thread because that's every season of Doctor Who has to do that to a certain extent. That's what the show is. It it's called Doctor Who. But, like, this season feels like right now it is actually kind of, like, asking those questions in a more serious way of, like who is the doctor like in like who is this doctor and like 
part of that is like he is the kind of exploring his own identity in a way that does feel very palpable in the way that Capaldi's playing it. And they're just so on point with his character all the time because yeah. I love, you know, he realizes he begs them to run. He totally does his due diligence there and then he yeah. leaves and he says to Clara, look, and, and it feels so vulnerable because he lists all the reasons. They're totally logical and good reasons for him to leave. And he says, and it almost feels like he's pleading with her to give him a reason because he's yeah. just saying like, I don't know. This is all I can think of. And what am I beyond this? And the thing is, she's seen the best of him and kind of the worst of him. Yeah. And so she does know. And that whole device of him talking to babies, it's really funny. And then it turns really... It's the most, like, heartbreaking scene I've seen in Doctor Who since the Doctor's wife and him, like, having to say goodbye to the TARDIS. Yeah. Hello. It's just like... Because it's like, that scene is like, the first time he, he he's translating for the baby is like the perfect encapsulation of like, how this episode is somehow able to do like, the most heartbreaking stuff and like, this really funny stuff kind yeah. of at the same time. Is that like, yeah, he starts translating for the baby, and it's like, this immediate callback that if you, you know, you remember like, closing time where he's with like, Stormageddon and Matt Smith, and it's all silly and funny. And I like that like, there's a certain continuity there of not just he's able to translate babies, but that like, Babies have these, like, really articulate thoughts that are, like, poetic in a way that, like, with Stormageddon is, like, really ridiculous. But here, like, he's translating it of, like, this baby is crying and he's just, like, saying, like, mother, I am afraid. Like, mother, where are you? In a way that's, like, this very poetic language that he translates it into that feels like it is that same thing from Closing Time. And then it's that whole funny thing of, like, he is just kind of saying this and nobody else in the room has caught on, although you, the viewer... If you are, like, a, a good Doctor Who viewer, you have probably already caught on of, like, like, what he's doing when he starts doing that. And Clara has to explain to everyone, oh, he speaks baby. It's yeah. like, that's a really funny, like, if you're, like, outside of the emotions of the moment, that's a hilarious fucking joke. And it would be really funny. But then it's like, you go back to, like, what he's saying, and there's something... I mean, it is, like, the most primal emotion that you could possibly tap into that, of, like, this baby calling out for its mother and, like, translating it into that poetic language... Like, you know, like, I was getting kind of choked up when that was happening. It's like, this is a... This is like, that's a really intense thing to go for. It's, you know, you said you saw the episode twice. I haven't had time to, but I really want to. And this is one of the scenes be that I want to watch it again for. Because it was another moment where I wasn't sure how to react at first. Yeah. And I definitely got to the same place you were. I'm like, oh, this is incredible. This is good drama. Yeah. Um, but I think it's intentionally disarming. Because it's yeah. the Doctor finding himself in a place... That he didn't necessarily mean to go to, and you as the viewer kind of having to catch up to him. Yeah, because it's a scene that, like, you feel like. Because this is, I mean, this is something that, like, when you later get into the episode and it starts talking about stories, I think that's when you, like, rewatch it and are able to, like, see that, like, oh, like, it is playing with how stories are told and how stories are constructed and what all that means in a very deep way. And, like, this is that scene of, like, it should be funny because in this like scene has been done funny before it is taking this funny thing that happened and you are supposed to be like it's funny but like it's so not because if you are with the doctor the doctor is feeling something in that moment that none of the other characters in the room are feeling because he is tied into like it's tied into his character arc and nobody else is exposed to that and even the viewer isn't really exposed to what the doctor is feeling yet and it's like one of those pieces that get put in place that then builds up to his sort of kind of emotional breakdown he has in the end of the episode in, like, the manger area. Like, it's, it's like, setting that up in a way that you don't realize that, like you said, it's really disarming because you're expecting it to be funny because so much of the, the episode has been funny, and when it hasn't been funny up to that point and it's more serious, it's more serious in a way that it's, like, 
it's just putting the pieces in place for like the plot to go forward because it's a serious plot overall. It's not a farce, but it's not like the super like intense drama. It's the Vikings fighting space Vikings. Right. And I do think it is so perfectly tailored to Peter Capaldi, and I think yeah. consciously, because you mentioned, you know, Matt Smith in closing time. I definitely remember Matt Smith talked to babies. I forgot which episode. Yeah. And that is totally the eleventh Doctor version of that. That's absolutely what the eleventh Doctor would do. This is absolutely what the twelfth Doctor would do. Yeah, like because the twelfth Doctor is like, if anything, like compared to his like predecessors, particularly New Who, like he is a Doctor kind of without artifice. Like he's the one that like he's stripped off the bullshit. Is like the core of what I feel like he's like really getting at. And like, and that's what it is. It's like, you know, obviously when Matt Smith was translating for Stormageddon, he was putting a funny flair on it because he liked to be funny. Peter Capaldi, Twelfth Doctor, doesn't have time for that shit. Like, he, this is like, no, this is how I'm translating it. And they're two sides of the same person. Yes, yes. And I love that about it. And I love that the show is so good about that continuity, that internal continuity of the character. But yes, as you say, it, it is, there's no bullshit to it. And he doesn't have time for it. And frankly... I think the more you get to the heart of the Twelfth Doctor, the more you see how raw and vulnerable he is. Yeah. Like, I went back and watched a couple of clips from Deep Breath, I think around the time this season started, uh, including the part where Matt Smith has his cameo. Right. Yeah. And I do think that scene, that there is a crucial mistake of having Matt Smith. Yeah, it's awkward. For as big of a cameo as it is, and it has, had the way they do it specifically, but one thing I do think Stephen Moffat got there in his general roadmap of the Twelfth Doctor was just how vulnerable he would be, and the moment where he says to Clara, you know, why can't you see me? Is a great Doctor Who moment. Yes, yeah. And I think it feels kind of like the thesis for the Twelfth Doctor's run so far. Yeah. More than I think we maybe were able to realize at the time. Um, and definitely I think that's been kind of a running theme is sight and seeing yourself and other people seeing you and perception. And just this sense of rawness and vulnerability to his character that really kind of hits its zenith here at yeah. the end of the episode. When he just realizes like he just can't take some of this anymore it feels like the Twelfth Doctor regenerated with this well of pain inside him, and he's been having to reckon with that. Yeah, and it's taking some of the stuff of, like, like what has happened over his run that's, like... I mean, this is, like, maybe getting deeper into the episode than I maybe want to get so far. But, like, you know, people die on Doctor Who. Like, people die in every, basically, story of Doctor Who, and some of them are, like, more important deaths than others. But that's, like, the nature of it, is that, like, people die. And the, it does feel like... You know, part of the narrative around the Twelfth Doctor that I think we've always recognized is like some of the perception of him that is a very simplistic interpretation of the characters. It's like, well, he's the grumpy Doctor who doesn't like feel things and he's like all business or whatever. And part of that comes from like some of the episodes that he was in has that element of like Mummy on the Orient Express is the poster child of it, of where he has to compartmentalize things, extract himself from the situation because if he gets too emotionally involved, he won't be able to solve the problem. But, like, that's not because he doesn't feel emotions. If he didn't feel emotions or he wasn't an emotional person or an emotional being, he wouldn't be trying to solve that problem in the first place. He would just leave. It's like the, he's trying to save as many people as he can all the time. But the fact that it's like he's trying to do that means that he can't get too emotionally involved. I think that has been an undercurrent for the Twelfth Doctor. It's an undercurrent of, like, the whole series, really. But for him in particular, that has been happening. And if you just look at, like, O'Donnell dying in the previous episode and stuff... Like, those are that's important deaths and, like, important people that die that the Doctor just has to move on because he has no choice. And it's like, this episode brings that all to the forefront, you know, and lets I, it really explode. I really do think, in many ways, he is, in New Who at least, the most emotional Doctor. I think he feels things the deepest. I think he takes things to heart the hardest. 
And I think that's so core to who he is. Because I think if you compare him to the 11th Doctor, for instance, Eleven is a much more emotionally stable and mature person. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the way Matt Smith played it and was the genius of that performance, is that he's a young guy, but he has the wisdom. He has, like, complete wisdom. Yeah. And he knows he can use humor at times. And it's not even as a coping mechanism, necessarily. He just knows how to calm other people down. And he's very stable and mature in those emotions. And I think you see that, you know, at the end of, like, the fifth season when he's going off into the the box and into the sky. Yeah. And he thinks he's disappearing or in his regeneration where it's all very kind of noble and upstanding. And Peter Capaldi, I think the Twelfth Doctor kind of wants to play all that. But the problem is he has to compartmentalize because he just feels things to a point where it's tearing him apart. Yeah. And I think the deeper you get with the character, the more you realize that, the more you can read it back onto his early episodes, which I think it's there. You yeah. just don't see it as strongly. And it's fascinating. And I'm getting to the point where I'm ready after a season and a half to say he's my favorite modern Doctor. And I think that's the core of it. Because yeah. they've let this great, great actor play something immensely complex. Yeah. In a role that he knows like intimately. Yes. You know? And that he's really making his own. It's, yes. Yeah. I mean, this is like, yeah, like, because it's not even just like it's Peter Capaldi's best performances of the Doctor, which I do think it is, because they just give him kind of like the meatiest, like most direct character material here for him. But it's also just like it, it, it gets into something with like the Doctor's character, like I said, and like certain like like sum up earlier on of like it's always something that's there of like people dying and him not like him having to move on is always there. And, but, like, the show has never fully dealt with it because it kind of, I think, has been afraid to and it's a hard thing to deal with just for, like, the mechanics of the show ongoing. It's, like, it's a really big issue to bring up because people are going to have to keep on dying in future episodes of Doctor Who. It is what the show is. And so, yeah, I don't know. There's something... And, and I guess here's, like, I, I wanted to start out, like, transitioning into that aspect of the episode where then it starts becoming about the uh, Game of Thrones lady character... Because everyone like went crazy because Game of Thrones lady is in this. Maisie she Williams, does, yeah, she does a good job. Although, like, clearly she's like here more for the next episode than for this yes. episode. But like the whole aspect of her being a storyteller and that being like that becoming a big thematic element in sort of like the last act when the Space Vikings come down and that's how they defeat them is with like this illusory story. I mean, they defeat. I love this. They defeat the goofy like rubber suit space vikings with the power of cg special effects like that is literally the resolution of that of like the a plot of this episode is that cgi special effects come in and save the day again postmodern deconstruction yes. That's... because you have the most brilliant that fucking amazing scene where they recorded it and it's and she has like uh clara has like basically the iphone they put the benny hill theme over the Benny Hill stuff. Yeah. What is just, like, if you have ever seen the special edition version, or, like, special features of something like uh, like The Hobbit or something, like, you get the that footage of, here's, like, you know, acclaimed British thespian Richard Armitage standing on a green tarp going, like, it's the dragon! Everybody run! And there's nothing there. He's, like, staring at a fucking beach ball or something. And that's exactly what that footage is. It's a bunch of people in period costumes staring at this, like, dumb mock-up of something, reacting to it, trying to react to it as if it's something really threatening. Like, it's fucking amazing. Yes. It's great. And just Clara's glee at that. Yeah. Jenna Coleman took that and, like, chomped into it so hard, and I yeah. love that. And just the Doctor's joy and all that. Because I think that's part of it, too, is that, again, transitioning kind of into the end of the episode now, 
um, or that transition point, yeah. is you have this big victory. It's such a fun scene. You have the Doctor being kind of overjoyed because he got to kind of have it both ways here. Yeah. And he gets to be smug, but also just have fun with his new Viking friends. And Clara's yeah. there. And I think... That's the relationship in this episode between the humor and the drama is it's only by having these moments of high humor and slapstick and all this stuff that you can then have the high drama. Yeah. It's that contrast that matters. If it was all sad, I don't think it would be dynamic. Yeah. And it it certainly wouldn't be very Doctor Who if it was like that. Yeah. Yeah. So then you get like... Like what's there is... Yeah. like So then Game of Thrones lady is dead because he used her like a battery and like Peter Capaldi, like the 12th Doctor, did not expect that to happen and that's when you get like the scene where it's like you get all like it's such an amazing scene where he's just fed up with it and can I before we get there I think the scene where he realizes she's died you can't undersell that either because the way he's just he's like broken by that and he just has to get out of the room and we've never seen the 12th Doctor like that and him saying I'm sorry I'm extremely sorry and it's intentionally you're hearing David Tennant there but you're hearing how far this guy has come from when we knew him as the guy with the the nice hair, you know, yeah. who would say, I'm so sorry, and that was just, that was his way of dealing with those emotions, was to say that kind of ritualistically, yeah. and then push it under, but he kind of knew how to say it. Twelve does not know how to say it, yeah. and he kind of forces it out, and then runs out of the room, like yeah. he's going to faint. It's and it's something where it's, a, yeah, and it's something where it's such a, like, human reaction, which is so, like, it's rare from this character, but it's also, I feel like it's a rare kind of thing in this kind of like narrative media that, that you don't usually have like like the reaction is like rushing to the body and it's like no like that's the kind of like <laughs> drama thing right right but that like the rushing out of the room when something really emotional happens like that's the like actual response that people have you know like that is the like I can't deal with these emotions I'm feeling right now I can't be around people so I'm just like I'm piecing the fuck out like that's that is the, like, real response. Yeah, it's, like... It's the thing about this episode, that it's, like... It's, like, really funny, goofy Doctor Who, and then it gets very real. And it's, like like you said, it's that contrast that makes both of those things work and makes it interesting. It is what allows it to analyze, like, Doctor Who and the Doctor character himself. Because it breaks him in context. It's because yes. he comes off this high that the low hurts so bad. Yeah. That he thinks he has to save the day in, like, the most magnificent fashion possible but he forgot that he's in an episode of Doctor Who which means that people have to die right and I think if he had lost the whole village he wouldn't have been as sad you know yes yeah it's that uh, again high to low so then as you say so he gets into the manger I like that word for this because I think it's symbolic in a very important way yeah Um, and yeah and his breakdown so what would what do you want where do you want to start there I mean yeah I guess the whole thing is that like so it, it definitely is a like a recurring theme for New Who in particular of like I mean it makes it makes you think of like the Ninth Doctor like you know just as once everybody lives kind of thing of this like the Doctor has seen especially now he's that he's so old he has seen so much death but it's just like the, the whole writing of that scene is so brilliant because it also like creates that really interesting dynamic with Clara where you see just how callous Clara has kind of become to this point that she does not react to Game of Thrones lady dying nearly like I mean almost at all like and Peter Capaldi like is fucking he's breaking apart because like she you know it's the whole part where she asks this like he says I've lost and he's just like what do you mean no like you've saved the village he's just like I don't mean the war I'll lose any war you like I'm sick of losing people and that's like it's that line of where it's like you it's that sort of like really raw emotionality that you never get out of this character basically that he's just 
he's just saying these things. It, like, you know, a lot of times maybe you'd say it's like in writing, oh, you want to be really subtle, but not all the time. Like, sometimes, like, things have been pushed to this breaking point where it is something that, like, he, like, this needs to come up. And it's, I think it's something that I've almost been, didn't know I was waiting for this to happen, but I feel like I have been waiting for this to happen because people die all the time in Doctor Who. And then, like, the other aspect of this scene is that the Doctor is raging against this. He is furious. He is, like, just, like, sad about all of this that is happening and how out of control it is for him. And you have this, like, when it's contrasted with and juxtaposed with the uh, sort of all the story stuff that they were talking about earlier with, like, her being a storyteller and you defeating them with the power of story and illusions, that... It, it it has to put you in a mindset if you're looking at it critically of a sort of like meta sort of like out there like postmodern mindset that the doctor is not just raging against this of like oh I can't I haven't been saving these people is that he's it's in almost kind of a Hamlet way he is raging against his role as a character in these stories because like I said people die in Doctor Who people die in every single story of Doctor Who because that's what the stories are that is the formula that's how these stories are told because you need a certain level of stakes, you need a certain level of danger, and you need those things to escalate. And to get those things to escalate, you kill off secondary characters. But the nature of the Doctor as a character is that he is the person who tries to save everybody, who tries to save the person that he's fighting against. You know, he tries to save the villain. He's because he's a lover of life. He's a lover of nature. He's trying to be sort of like omnibenevolent in his approach to solving these problems. But be, but he can never do it because that would not be an interesting story. And so when the doctor says, it's like, I'm going to save her. And like, if whoever's listening and is trying to stop me to hell with you, when he says that and he's pointing up to the sky, like, you know, you can say it's like he's saying it to the gods. He's saying it to the time lords because that's like, he's always felt restricted by the laws of time, but he's also saying it to the writers. Like he's saying this, like, I, like, I need to be the character that I need to be because I'm stuck in these laws of time, but the laws of time are arbitrary. The laws of time are made up by the writers. They're not the laws of time. They're the laws of the structure of the show that he exists in. And that's like the whole thrust of the character drama. And I think it's like, it's something that is so, it's really subtly done. And it's, it's done on such like an elegant level that I find it just absolutely incredible that like they're able to approach it in that way, in a way that's so much more I guess sophisticated than you would normally see this kind of stuff happen that it is an intense character moment that is also linked to this like very sort of like high idea about how to approach literature and fiction that I just find amazing I agree with all of that I couldn't say it better and I think that's where the door opens for them to do the thing they do with the face and yes well, how did you feel about that? Because I was really curious to hear your thoughts. I thought it was amazing. I am so relieved that it's like my biggest emotion is like, thank God that was not the plot of an episode. Was like the 12th Doctor going back to Pompeii and like losing his memory. And it's like, oh, he was really blah, 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 blah. Like that was like, that would be like the like bad Stephen Moffat way of handling that. And ever since Deep Breath where they like broached that and Stephen Moffat was saying, it's like, well, I have an idea. I have a reason for why. I was always like, oh God, no, please don't, please don't do this thing. It would be the worst thing if that was like, you're trying to address this dumb continuity thing about like, the, this actress had multiple roles in the program to make that the plot of your episode would be the most horrendous thing ever but to make it a small character detail I think is a really poignant elegant thing to do that also is like a really 
it's a really like weirdly effective moment in a way I wouldn't think of like just like directly cutting to scenes from Fires of Pompeii where it's like you have David Tennant on screen you have Donna's on there for a little bit and she's crying and really sad and then you have like that fantastic shot of David Tennant like coming out of the tar just holding his hand out and you might I don't remember what he says you should probably say come with me if you want to live if you want to make a really bad Terminator reference there it was the best scene in what is otherwise a pretty bad episode yeah 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 Fires of Pompeii is not that good but then yeah then you cut to Peter Capaldi because it's Peter Capaldi and it's like that's the 12th Doctor and the fact that it is a reminder to himself not to forget this thing that he forgets a lot, which is that he's the doctor and he is there to save people, and that's who he's he is. That's what he's supposed to be trying to do. I do think that's a really elegant, kind of like beautiful way to bring it up, as opposed to the like let's like ham hammer that into it, like the plot of like the season finale or something as an explanation. It's so weird because it's something I was afraid they were going to do when they when they did it in deep breath and they just broached it with the line "Who frowned it, Who frowned me this face?" And yeah, it's like I've seen this face somewhere before. Right. Yeah. That was enough, and I thought maybe they would just leave it at that. Yeah. And I was always afraid they would do this in some way, either as you said, the weird like Back to the Future two thing they could do yeah. with it, or you know, with this. And I think if you told me just out of context that this is what they were going to do, I would say you're fucking stupid. A, you're valorizing an episode that wasn't that good. Yeah. You're elevating a character who I don't think the Doctor would remember anyway because he saves lots of people, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. But in context, it works, as you say, kind of beautifully. And that's... And because it's an episode that is so... I don't think meta is even the right word. I do think postmodern and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. It is, you know, a deconstruction. Because of it's all all those levels, as you say, it's the character rallying against his literary role in things, yeah. his dramatic role in things, then you've earned it. Yes. And... That's so incredible because there is a history of Stephen Moffat doing stunts like this that he has not earned, like Doctor Who, yes, and stuff like that. But this is so small scale in in the moment it's introduced, yeah. And it is it's so intimate, like it's, it's so such intimate. an intimate. It's because it's like it's an insular thing, yeah. Like it's just because because like I mean literally like the Doctor is the only one who knows it. Like, like Clara's in that scene, but she's not privy to the flashback. Like she's he never says to her. It's like. Oh yes, there was this this like family of Romans that were living in Pompeii that I was going to be like fuck it, let them all burn. I was like, eh, I'll save this guy because he's acclaimed Scottish actor Peter Capaldi. <laughs> yes, so I look forward to the episode where he has this again and remembers the guy from Children of Earth. Yes, who he would not have met. I've, and then like remember this like oh yeah, Amy like Karen Gillan was in she, she was in Pompeii too. Like, who, who smiled her that face? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it almost feels like something that maybe Stephen Moffat never intended to use again and then kind of had a perfect moment to use it and was like, yeah. okay, I actually, we might as well because this is an organic, we don't, like, that's why I would say they, they never needed to address yes. that he's the same actor because whatever, that happens. That happened with Colin Baker too. Yes. It'll, yeah. I'm sure it will happen again. You know, at some point, and multiple companions have shown up in the show before they. I think probably the guy who plays the Viking named ZZ Top. I'm looking at him for the next Doctor. Okay, but you know this stuff happens, and you don't need to address it. But if you can do it in a way that is organic and character building, why not? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. It'll it'll get the fucking idiot fans to shut up for a second. I mean, no, it won't because they're gonna. They're still talking about how there are horns on Viking helmets and how Game of Thrones lady isn't the Ronnie because she's not going to be the Ronnie. The Ronnie is never coming back. Shut up! Shut up! I hate it. Also, I feel like if you were casting the Ronnie, it would have to be someone who could be on the show more. Yes, exactly. Like, that's the thing. Like she, Maisie Williams is very busy shooting this giant Game of Thrones production. She had time for two Doctor Who episodes, not 
recurring cast member Maisie Williams. Yeah, like, I have seen so many reactions of, like... Because there was so much speculation beforehand of, like, oh, oh God. It's, the, it's the girl from Game of Thrones. She's the girl from Game of Thrones, so of course it's going to be something huge and big, and it's like, she's got to be so important. And it's like, they of can't... course she's going to be either Susan or she's going to be the Ronnie. And it's like... I have been hearing you fuckers like talking about how the Ronnie is going to come back into the show since like 2010. Fucking stop it. She's never coming back. They made the Master a woman. Guess what the Ronnie was? She was just a female version of the Master, only not literally. She's never coming back. She wasn't a good villain. Both of her episodes are some of the worst episodes in the history of Doctor Who. Shut up about the Ronnie. Stop it. I hate you all. This episode is amazing if you're, like, getting frustrated by this episode because this character, this actress who wasn't cast as a character who's really significant to the lore of Doctor Who, you are an idiot and you shouldn't be watching things. You should just, like, stop. You should just stop everything. It does definitely feel like this season has thumbed its nose pretty fucking hard at the internet crowd because it is not catering to modern Who fans at all. Which makes me so happy because I hate those fuckers some of the time. It makes me happy too because I also think, frankly, at a certain point, New Who is old enough that it doesn't need to do that anymore. Yeah, it has exactly, its own yeah. history and and weight to it that it can just live with that. And I think season eight mostly did that, and I think season nine is completely doing that. Yeah, and it's I like just that. moving forward. Like that's yeah. what Doctor Who is. So it has to be is a forward facing show. It yeah. go forward if you want to have like your cool like. Like, David Tennant flashback in this episode, I am totally cool. Like, just keep it like a click, quick little thing. That's as far in the back you go. Yeah. It's like you get that, you hit that note, you keep on going forward. And again, it's earned because that... Yes, it's very earned. And he is the Doctor. I mean, it's yes, that's okay yes. because, yeah, this guy would have those memories and all that. It's the same character, so, and it's nice. And it's always nice when you get that and you're like, you remember again, like, man, over 50 years, they still haven't fucked this up. I can look at nice hair David Tennant and gray hair Peter Capaldi and I don't miss a beat. They are the same character. Yes, yeah. That's one day statistically they have to mess that up, but they sure as shit haven't yet, and yeah. that's pretty amazing. So anyway, you could even cut to like Colin Baker in his rainbow suit, and yeah, it would be tougher. But <laughs> this would be really funny if like in the middle of that scene, like with the flashback that David hit it, there is just like a close up of Colin Baker. It's like it's just like hmm, it's what? about time. I'm like what? Well, if only Maisie Williams was playing the Ronnie, then we could have that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's right. Yeah. She's a six doctor person, right? Yes, okay. yeah. She's like her first story was Mark and the Ronnie, which is a six doctor one. Okay, that's what I thought. Anyway, written by Pip and Jane Baker. <laughs> I I remember that just because it's like the my favorite writing credit is this husband wife team that wrote a couple of like six doctor and seven doctor stories. Pip and Jane Baker. I just yeah, that's funny. That's, that's just a fantastic <laughs> pair of names. Okay. Um... Let's see, what what did I want? Okay, let's finish the episode out. Yes. Because he goes and gets the stuff from the aliens and puts it in Maisie Williams. Makes her immortal. Probably not the right choice to make. But, but he's an emotionalist, which is the point. That's what's so great, yeah. because then he gets back on the TARDIS and time will tell, which as I understand it is a Seventh Doctor quote. Yes. I mean, it's a thing that people say right. also. Yeah. Time will tell. I, it's, I, it's a common phrase. Well, I thought the like, specific wording yeah, was. Yeah, yeah, anyway. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's... And that whole thing, because you can tell Clara's a little freaked out by it. The Doctor is not easy with his decision either. And that's where we end the episode. And that's a great place to end it. Yeah, and like in that like last, like like the time skip sequence thing, yes. like it's spinning around Game of Thrones girl and like the stars are like, like seasons changing and stuff. And it like, she starts, I like, like it's just, you know, I've never seen Game of Thrones and everyone was saying, it's like, oh, she's a, like an amazing actress. And for most of this episode, I was like, I think she's fine, but like she's not really doing anything that much in this episode. She's good when she's there. 
But it was it was that scene that like when it's spinning around her and it starts on her face and she looks all happy because she's like happy. I'm immortal now and I don't know that, but I'm alive and that's awesome. I'm happy Game of Thrones girl. I'm in a Viking village and then it spins around and goes around and around and it comes back around on her face and she's really sad and it starts zooming in and then she's just like her face like I swear like two muscles change and she goes from sad to like really sinister and intimidating. It was like okay, that's probably like people like Game of Thrones girl. That's probably it. What that what happened right there. That well, was probably it. I'll talk about Maisie Williams for a second because okay. I have actual history with the actress. Yeah. Um, that makes it sound like I know her. No, <laughs> I have history watching her performances. There we go. That's okay, it. Yeah. Uh, no, and I have some history with Maisie Williams. Mostly, she's written as Arya from Game of Thrones in this one. She's the tomboy in the village. That's that's Arya. She's a little more meek, and you can tell she's not going to be meek next time. No. And that's. Again, when I said last week, I can't wait for Maisie Williams and Peter Capaldi together, that's not really what we got this week. They do have a good scene, but specifically, again, every season of Game of Thrones is Maisie Williams paired with a different male adult co-star and going on a road trip because it's funny and she does not fear anyone. She's, like, not intimidated and it's an interesting dynamic, and that totally seems like that's what next week is going to be. Yeah. And I think that could be fantastic. But just overall, like, I love this as an idea for a quote-unquote two-parter where clearly these are very distinct this yeah, is its yeah. own story like you could even take a break for a couple of weeks and come back to it if you wanted but they're doing I mean, it. fuck you could i mean you don't even necessarily have to follow up on this no because oh that reminds that was the other thing that they were like oh so of course she's going to be jenny from the doctor's daughter episode because remember her <sighs> she went off into outer space and never came back it's like they're never if they didn't do anything with her like in the next few years after that episode came out they're never doing anything with that character sorry move on yeah. like the doctor has a literal granddaughter who he whom he left on earth in 1964 she has never been mentioned again outside of the first doctor era other than okay she's in the five doctors but other than that he has a biological granddaughter that is out there whom he who he raised she has never come back on the show Ginny's not going to come back. Shut up. Yes. Or Ginny will come back and Ginny is secretly the Ronnie and she's been the Ronnie the whole time. I mean, is Stephen Moffat even aware of Ginny? He didn't write that episode. Fuck it. No, yeah. That's, I, not, that's not from his I am barely aware of her. Like, I didn't even realize it until I saw some of the comments of people like, it's like, oh, this is who Game of Thrones girl is going to be. It's like, who's Ginny? Oh, yeah. Are people that not aware okay. that they hire major actors for Doctor Who all the time? Yeah. Maisie Williams is not the first famous person to be on Doctor Who, and in fact, I would call her significantly less famous than, like, Diana Rigg, you yeah. know? I mean, she's... Uh, also, to that point, she's not the first Game of Thrones person to be on Doctor Who by a long shot. Diana Rigg, also on Game yes, of Thrones. Yes, exactly. Uh, they had Liam Cunningham, same season. He was in Cold War. It's, this happens, yes. Yes, yeah. One day we'll have I Sean... mean, every British actor is, like, on Doctor Who at some point. It's yes. like a law in that country, I think. Well, it's like we're getting to the point where Harry Potter, Game of Thrones... And Doctor Who will all be sharing an actor base. Yeah. You know, because they all employed everyone at a certain point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anyway. Um, but yeah, just great episode. I am so excited for next week. And I think as a two-parter, this could be so fascinating to have two distinct stories that are linked more emotionally and thematically than they are literally. Yeah. And next up, next week is interesting because it's a different writer. It's Catherine Tregenna, mm -hmm. who I don't know if she's written for Doctor Who before. I'd have to check that. Um, but directed by the same person because they still always do these in two-episode blocks. Um, even when they're not doing two-parters. And I just think that's interesting because, you know, one of the things we were both kind of worried about off the air before the season started is, will this warrant talking about Doctor Who every week if they're two-parters? Right, yeah. And it totally has. Yes. Like, the first two stories are pretty traditional two-parters, yeah. but they're still very meaty each hour. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, I think, like, especially, uh, like, Under the Lake and Before the Flood, like, that two-parter, I mean, it is, like, sort of the traditional New Who two-parter in some ways, but it also, like, th- the pacing of the episodes is such that, like, they both can feel like self-contained episodes in and of themselves. Not to the extent that I presume, like, these two are going to be, but... Right. Yeah, like, it's the, it is something where it's, like, you could watch Under the Lake or Before the Flood and, like, in, in either of those episodes individually and you could basically be happy with it. Whereas, like, if you, you know, went back to old two-parters, like, I think that would be kind of impossible to do. Like, Daleks take Manhattan. Yeah, exactly. You need that's... to watch all of that gym right away. Or, that's... you know, that, that that classic master three-parter with John Sim at the end of season three. That's, you gotta do all of that in one sitting. Still better than Daleks take Manhattan. Okay, yeah. I mean, most things are. Yeah. That's still, I don't even remember what the two uh, titles of that one are. I just know no, that's the yeah. worst Doctor Who two-parter. Yes, yeah. It's pretty rough. Yeah. Anyway. Um, <laughs> let's see. Anything else to say on this one? It's so good. It's so good. And it's something where it's like, I've, I have seen some people who really like the episode online, but like, I've seen a weird amount of people who don't like the episode in a way that's like really disappointing to me, because like, I love it so much, and I do think there is so much here that is a much smarter episode than most episodes of Doctor Who tend to be. It's like it's so rich. It's so. I mean, there's a reason why I watched it back to back. I don't like. I usually watch most episodes of Doctor Who at least twice at some point because I love the show so much and it's such a part of my life now. But I don't usually just be like, okay, I need to watch this again the way I would like maybe some like really amazing movie like Primer or something where it's like I need to watch this again with the knowledge I have just gained while it's still fresh so that I can like understand this thing in a more like holistic sense. Yeah, and like this episode did that for me, and like. Like, TV do- almost never does that, you know? Like, I almost never do that. You're way more into, like, looking at fan reactions and stuff online than I do. I almost tune it out Yeah, entirely, I mean, it's a smart... But... I, it's a smarter thing to tune it out, but there's something about the fact that it's like... Like I said, Doctor Who is such a big part of my life in general that I feel, like, compelled I have to know. Well, I here's what I was gonna, see. I was going to ask you, because yeah. I have just gone tip of the iceberg this season and looked at, like, comment sections and such. Right. And, I, and like, reviews, and I've definitely seen a lot of people... Not getting Clara this season. Yes, and nobody understands what they're doing with her this season. Please. And I've seen a lot of... And I, throughout his run, I think Peter Capaldi has been a little underappreciated in some sectors. Because frankly, what he's doing is more subtle yeah. than I think people are maybe used to. Um, and that's just not New Who. That's kind of just the history of Doctor Who. Um, so, but I mean, what is the fan reaction? Because I would expect for this season it would be a lot more mixed. I mean, it's it's interesting because it's hard to get a... Like, it's hard to, like, really get a good reading of it because it is kind of all over the place and depends on where you go, what you see. I do think, like, the what, the one of the things that's interesting about Doctor Who is that there are so many different ways to approach the show and to, like, come to the show for that, like, you know, there are people who, like, went crazy because there was, like, five seconds of footage of David Tennant in this episode. And for that reason, they love this episode, even if they didn't like anything else in the episode. Like, there's a lot of people who were like that that I don't even understand... Why you're still watching the show if, like, the thing you really loved about it was just David Tennant. I've never understood people who get that attached to an individual doctor. But, yeah, like, I do think there are a lot of people... I think people who, like, generally have, like, a more of a history with the show, like us, like, do appreciate especially what, like, Peter Capaldi has brought and what, like, these last two seasons have done. But there is, like, a strong segment of, like, I think the younger audience that doesn't... Like, doesn't quite get into it so much. I don't know. Well, and I do know the show's ratings have been down this season. They, they're they not awful or anything, and yeah. it's definitely, ratings are just changing. I mean, 
BBC's iPlayer in the UK has gotten very big, and the show is watched a lot there. And if you factor all that in, it's not down much at all. Like yeah. statistically, it's not it's negligible. But it is worth noting just that I do think Stephen Moffat was fairly conscious. I don't think he could do any of the stuff he's done in season eight or nine if the show didn't have a certain plateau of popularity that it's gotten. Yeah. Like, I think you had to earn the popularity to then go in the direction he's gone, which is, I think, a lot more introspective and, frankly, more intellectual than New Who has necessarily been when it was in a more populist mode. And had to be, because you have to... Again, you have to get to a level where you earn the stability to do this. Yeah. You have to know you're going to be on the air for years to come and not season to season. Yeah, to, like, cast a 55-year-old guy yes. in this role that, like, the last couple of the people who've played it have been either in their 20s or 30s, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he's not a sex symbol doctor. and I mean, he's the sexiest doctor of the new Who doctors to me. Yes. Fuck, man. That dude is cool. Like, oh, yes. He, he, plays, he played an electric guitar version of the Doctor Who theme over the opening. That is a fucking sexy thing to do in my book. In terms of, like, man crush appeal, absolutely yes. he's the best. In like conventional heteronormative yeah, like, sex symbol, I don't. Yeah, I don't think there's like you don't have the streams of Capaldi fangirls the way that Tennant. I assume just like he, every time he steps out of his house, it is like nerdy Beatles thing going on there. There are fewer tumblers. Let's put yeah. it that way. Anyway, but no, it's but it's good. I mean, it's it's great that I mean again, New Who is here to stay. It's not yes, going yeah. anywhere, and I like that they've taken that and instead of like. I feel like Stephen Moffat probably got exhausted by the eventization of Doctor Who that it got into in series 6 and 7. Yeah. And it's very much not been doing that with 8 and 9. And it's not a coincidence the show's gotten better. Yeah, I agree. I should say, like, as far as, like, fan and, like, just, like, community reaction stuff goes, like, one reviewer that I really like that I think has, like, a very, like, very thoughtful and critical approach to the show is, I wish I could remember his name, but it's the guy who does the reviews on the AV Club. He yeah. does very good reviews, and he is definitely, like, more in our camp of how he tries to approach these episodes and reviews these episodes. It's not like what I find a lot of TV episode review sites do is just, like, kind of a, like, here's a summary that, like, almost the entire review is, like, it's a summary, and it's, like, this funny thing happened that wasn't, like, the doctor put out, brought out a yo-yo, and then that's, like, 8 out of 10. You're, like, what is this review? Like, he really gets into it and, like, gets no, into I, the history of the I show read this, stuff. too. Yeah. I don't always agree with him, which is fine. I yeah. do think he's a good writer, yeah. Yeah, he definitely, like, elucidates his point. And AV Club is a great site yeah. if you don't read it. Yeah. They do not have crap reviews, generally. They're not IGN. Let's just beat around the bush. You're talking about IGN. Yes. Okay. I would say, I read the IGN review for this episode, and that was the one, the straw that broke the camel back was when the only negative point that reviewer brought up for this episode was the fact that Maisie Williams wasn't playing a character more tightly, like, attached to Doctor Who history. It's like, that is the most disgusting fucking criticism I think I have ever heard. That you... Just on your fucking own got yourself psyched up about, like, rampant speculation about this actress playing a character that there's no possible way, if you have a rational mind, could possibly be playing any of these roles in this episode. And that's how you're like, well, this episode was a disappointment. Like, go fuck yourself. That's not criticism. That's like, I don't know what that is. That's just sad. Yes. Anyway, what were you going to say about the AV Club review? Oh, it's just like, uh, it's very good. Like, I was just like... You said there was something he said or something that you disagreed uh, with. No, no. Oh, okay. I think it was just like I just wanted to mention that, like, because we were okay. talking about like community feedback and stuff. Okay. That that the, those reviews are the ones that I've seen that like feel to me the most of like, like you said, I don't always agree with everything he says, 
but like I always feel like he makes an interesting point and says something like worth listening to and worth considering. It's something that I always enjoy when an episode comes back, like reading those reviews in particular, because I don't come away with them from them like, oh, this is terrible, and the state of like reviewing TV on the internet is a weird, sad, wild west that I usually don't get into. It's like, yeah, that was like it's food for thought. Yeah, I'm trying to look up his name, but the AV Club is having a problem right now and is not rendering most of its page. So there you go. That's advertising on the I mean I will say like he because I've seen some negative feedback to this episode and he gave it like a, a glowing review so yeah no I, I saw that too happened. anyway yeah. um yeah can we make fun of IGN for a second sure go to ahead yeah. okay the girl who died A plus oh right. before we okay before we get into IGN I just want to like because we didn't mention a lot about Clara I just want to oh, say yes. like one thing I found like really interesting was the because we talked about uh, last week's with uh, last week's episode how they split the Doctor and the Clara up and like you got some scenes with Clara where she basically played the doctor role. I like that they kind of continued that with the beginning of this episode where she's on the, the cyber Viking ship or whatever. And she is like, if you are someone who's really excited about the idea of a woman playing doctor who like basically just watch that scene because she's basically playing the doctor and not in the way that like companions before have like imitated the doctor's mannerisms very specifically. It feels like no, she, like, understands why the Doctor, like, bluffs his way through stuff like that and is making it her own in, a, like, in a really interesting way. That's, yes. like, again, it's another one of those things where in, in no episode, no single episode in the season has had Clara, like, really heavily featured the way that Series 8 often did. But, like, if you're really paying attention to what the writing is doing and what uh, Jenna Louise Coleman is doing with the character, like, they clearly have an idea for where she is going and they're, like making her character very interesting in the background and she's I also, easily the best new who companion and continues to be I also just want to say you know Peter Capaldi all those great standout scenes we mentioned they do not exist in a vacuum and they yes. they do not get to happen without him duetting with Jenna Coleman yes exactly yeah, yeah. like she she's doing such an amazing job and the writers are doing such an amazing job to where like it's something where I'm really excited to like once she leaves the show watching season 8 and series 9 like just to see her arc as a character because she has like the most interesting arc I think any companion has had so far because it is very subtle it's not in your face and her slow transition from like the doctor's emotional center who keeps him on track to being more callous than the doctor himself is a really fascinating character arc that feels like it's been done so subtly and so naturally across these episodes. I actually got the feeling watching this episode, and I almost didn't want to say it, but you kind of set it up here. I think they could kill Clara, and they could have earned it really well. Like, yes. I don't necessarily want them to, but it felt like in this episode, if we're going in that direction, this is actually the only companion who I think could have earned a tragic ending. Yeah. Because I don't know if you would call it, in the literary sense, tragedy. Yeah. Like, I think it could just be where she's going in kind of becoming obsessive in this way. Yeah. Yeah, it's just something where... Like, and it's, I'm so happy that they haven't, like, at least so far, they have never done anything, like, really upfront and in-your-face about, like, the Danny Pink stuff. That was obviously really important, but I'm glad that, like, they're not, like, dwelling on it the way that I feel like the show very easily could and would really lose track of, like, itself and would, like, really drag episodes down. Instead, I feel like the fact that Danny died and that, like, Clara has clearly not really moved on from that because she doesn't have any other relationship in her life like that. She, like, her personal life seems to be rescinding so far into the background for her where we haven't seen her, like, doing her school teacher job since the, the fucking season opener. That was such a big part of season eight. I think that's, like, very much on purpose and I think it's it's making a very interesting dynamic for her character. Yeah. I just love that they're doing it all in the background 
it, it's it's very effective. I think absolutely. All right, really quick, just so we end this episode on something funny. Yeah, I saw ahead. this today. Did you see, IGN published a new top 100 games of all time list. No. Okay. When was the last time they did this? Like two years ago? Oh, uh, it's a couple years ago. Anyway, IGN does this a lot. And look, IGN does some things okay. They do not do criticism well. And when they make these lists, sometimes they're okay. But like this one in particular is so fucking stupid. I just want to run through the top twenty and make fun of it. Okay, go ahead. Because if this was someone's personal top twenty, I wouldn't bat an eyelash at it. Of it. But you're calling it the top one hundred games of all time. Yeah, as judged by the like review committee that exists at IGN, which is a dumb thing to ever say. These yeah. are the top one hundred. Anyway, so number twenty, Street Fighter Two. That's fine. Whatever. Okay. Yeah. Good game. The historic game, right? Yes. Fundamental. Right. Number 19, Deus Ex from 2000. We're still on okay territory. Yeah, I, I I'm okay with that. Rock Band 4 ad just popped up on Jonathan's laptop. This, this is going to get derailed by their incessant advertising. Yeah. I'm going to see if this goes away. Loading bar. All right. Uh, number 12, okay. Deus Ex. And number 18, Baldur's Gate 2. Again, we're still in mostly respectful Yeah, territory. like I can agree with these choices, like, in, like... General, if not like specifically. Yeah. All right. Number seventeen. Team. Portal. Yeah. Portal one. Probably a little high, but whatever. Yeah, I'm fine with it. Number sixteen. This is where I started calling bullshit. Okay. Grand Theft Auto Five. Yeah. No. I, is, I like that game a lot more than you. I would not put it anywhere near there. And this is the highest rated Grand Theft Auto on the list. Huh. Bull fucking shit. Yeah. This game did nothing for gaming history. Like, four or three, I could totally see because they changed paradigms. Five is just four again, yeah. kind of bigger. I mean... I could yeah. even, like, see San Andreas being there, but not five. Yeah. Number 15, Minecraft. Probably also kind of bullshit. On a, uh, in cultural impact, I can see that, but... I feel like there's not enough time on that one. Yeah. Like, it, like, Minecraft will probably be there. It's just like... yeah. Super Mario World, again, fine. Number 14, sure, yeah. Put that even a little bit higher. Yeah, 13, Chrono Trigger, again, probably a little low, but it's there, and that's fine. Good. Sure, yeah. Um, number 12, Sid Meier's Pirates. Okay. <laughs> that Wait. one I did not expect. And it's the original Sid Meier's Pirates, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 1987. Yeah, okay. I never played the original Sid Meier's Pirates. Okay. I played the remake, but okay. no. Number 11, Mario 64. That's where I started questioning, that's your 11? What are your top 10? Yeah, okay. I'm really curious about this now. Just made me wonder. Number 10, Tetris. Okay, fine. yeah. Although if you're ranking Tetris at all, I don't know. It's, okay, here's where we get into the shit. Number <laughs> 9 is Halo 2, and that's the highest ranked Halo. What? Where did that come from? Halo 2. Halo 2 is number 9. Yeah. I could see Halo 1. I could see Halo 3. I would even accept Halo Reach as an answer there. Halo 2? What? Groundbreaking multiplayer. Yes, definitely. Bad campaign. So like, I, I love Halo 2, don't get me wrong, yeah. but it is the weakest Halo. Yeah. I mean, it's in an argument with like Halo 4, and I would probably say Halo 4 wins out. Uh, easily. There's no question for me on that one. But yeah. I mean, the campaign in Halo 4 is definitely better, but yeah. I, I like the multiplayer. Number 8, Ocarina of Time. Okay, yeah. But again, I'm at this point where I'm like, what's higher okay, than yeah. Ocarina I mean, of yeah, Time? I, guess it just... would, I would say top 10, definitely. I would say maybe number 1. For a lot of people. Number 7, Super Metroid. That's maybe a bit high. Like, I, I recognize oh, that Super Metroid's really, really good, but... I would put it that high. That's... I don't know. I think Super Metroid's brilliant, but anyway. It's not better than fucking Knockerine of Time at all. Uh, I would, okay. Anyway, Half-Life 2 at number 6. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm fine with that. Here's where we get... I'd probably put Half-Life Portal 2 at number 5. That is stupid. That's... Yeah. I love Portal 2. I love it to death. What are you talking about? 
Yeah, no. What are yeah. you talking about? I mean, about? yeah, Portal 2's... I mean, I don't even know if Portal 2's necessarily even better than Portal 1. That's like a deeper conversation. Number four, Super Mario Bros. Okay, sure, yeah. Yeah, I get it. Um, number three, Doom. Yeah, okay, I'm fine with that. Okay. Doom is a really good game. Doom it's, actually it's holds good. up. It's good. Yeah. And then A Link to the Past at number two. Zelda, A Link to the Past. I'm... I'm I accept that. Like, I'm not as big I on Link to the Past that people are, but I accept it. I accept it okay. Um, I'm going to talk about certain series and stuff and representation in a minute. We're just going through the list now. All right, then their number one is Super Mario Brothers 3, Super which feels a little out of left field. Three. Yeah. It's a new one. Which is not a lot of people's one favorite. and not world. Yeah. Because I guess, I mean, I, I like Super Mario Brothers 3 quite a lot. But I do I, too. I think world is a better game. Like, I think, and I think... Super Mario Brothers 1 is the more pure and, like, historically significant one, obviously. Yeah, I mean, if I were making a list, I probably would say the same thing. I like 3 maybe the most of those in certain ways, but I also see how, yeah, I mean... Yeah, I mean, it has the innovation. It added a world map. That was big. Uh, and it has some cool things in there. But also has a lot of things that were never repeated. And some of that's cool and some of that's not. But anyway... But here's some of the things that that list does not have. Okay. I mean, the Halo thing is huge, I think. That's just Yeah, that's fucking silly. Bizarre. That's really silly that Halo 2 is number 9. I think the general positioning of some of their Zelda games on there is a little odd to me. Yeah, and especially having Ocarina and Link to the Past in the top 10 is like... Yeah. I would personally pick one of the two. Yes. And have them be represented up there. There's no Final Fantasy in the top 20. Huh. I just want to call it, and I know that's a series that has gone off the rails. You have to have one of them in the top twenty. Yeah. It's just even if you're doing the default of seven, I'm fine with that. Like I thought seven was going to be their number one or two because they love that game over there, but not even like six or four or any of those. And it's like that just feels like a giant gap. Yes, so I want to make fun of that. That's like actually like legitimately really surprising. Yeah. I didn't think about it when yeah. you're reading the list, but yes, like Final Fantasy four or six or seven. Should be there. In fact, generally... Maybe even 10. Like, I hate 10, but I know that people love it enough that I would be fine with it being there. And generally, I think JRPGs and Japanese games in general are very underrepresented on that list. Because you don't have... Sure. You have Chrono's Trigger, and that's the only major RPG at all on there. You don't have any... Like, and in terms of which modern games they picked, they picked Portal 2 and Grand Theft Auto V, for instance, and not something like Mass Effect. Yeah. Which is such a more, I think, innovative and probably influential title. Yeah. If you look at the impact it's had already. I agree, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the obvious thing that's not there, that's like... I mean, Persona 3 and Persona 4 are the two best games ever made. But like, I know we those know are... that We know the truth here. I would never expect stuff. to see yeah. those, though, because no, I know I those are so niche. But, but they are still wrong by not putting yes. them there. It doesn't change the fact that they are, like, sadly misguided. Yeah, and then I just think, yeah, I... And then, like, the specific positioning of some of those Marios was weird to me, too, like... Uh, I definitely don't understand putting 64 below, like, 3. And 3, they put at number 1. So there you yeah. go. But... Yeah, we, anyway, we I know, make fun of it. We know what the best video games of all time are here. We made our top 10, and our, like, top 2 are the same ones. So it's like... Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, anyway, I just like to make fun of IGN every once in a while, because... Again, am I nitpicking? Absolutely. But you know what? When you make a list called the, the Top 100, you have the definitive article... Yeah. The top 100 games of two thousand of all time. time. Again, open- because again, this is not nearly the first time they have done this. No. You're opening yourself up to the, the whole bag of shit there. So. Yes. And no, Super Mario Brothers 3 is not the top game of all time. Like, that is a... I feel like... 
I understand, like, it's a really good game and it's an important again, game, but it feels weird that you pick that one. All I'm saying is, again, if you told yeah. me that was your favorite game of all time, I would not bat Fine. an eyelash. Yes. Totally yeah. understandable. But, like, again, as you said, that might be my favorite of those, like, 2D Mario games, but again, if I'm listing, like, historical and, like, all those things that would go into the best, I, I, it would be in the top 100, absolutely. I don't think it would probably even be in the top 10. No, not for me. Because I definitely think, actually, in terms of overall historical impact, you have to pick Mario 1 or Mario 64. I mean, those are the two sure, paradigm yeah, yeah, shifters. Yeah. So, yeah, it just depends. And then, yeah, Ocarina of... Again, like, Ocarina of Time also is clearly a more influential game than Link to the Past, so it depends on where you go with those things. Yeah, so, yeah definitely. In any case. Um, yeah, just, yeah. It's, it's, we should just make our own, Jonathan. We should just go for it. Top 100 video games of all time. Metal Gear Solid 5 at number 1. I'm actually slightly surprised it's not on their list at number, like, in the top Me 20. Too. It yeah. probably is in the top 100. But I didn't want to go through all of that and depress myself. Like, this is maybe going off the rails a little bit, but I just want to, like, address a slightly, really quick... Have you read, like, any of the stuff about, like, what they have done with, like, the FOB stuff and, like, the, the microtransaction aspect of Metal Gear Solid Five? All I've seen... Release? All I've seen, and here's my description, is it's horrible... Yes. But this no is... one will stop sucking the game's dick so everyone just pretends it's good. Yeah. That's what I've seen. I've even seen videos of people like, look at how great Metal Gear Solid Five is when it glitches out horribly. Because no matter what this game does, no one will stop sucking its goddamn dick. Yes. And I would say maybe we'll, we'll go into this in depth. Maybe this will be a preview for next week's podcast and we'll, we'll do some heavier research because I think this is something that needs to be talked about. Like, they introduced... An insurance policy that you can pay real money for for your FOBs, so that people will can't go steal your resources from your forward operating bases. What FOB stands for? So you have to like it, they are literally using mafia racket tactics to try to get you to pay money. Of that, they are offering this insurance program, and after they offered the insurance program, they made it so that it is easier to steal more resources from people's bases. But it's genius, Sean. It's the greatest game ever made. Exactly. You don't like, understand how that's... They a- are literally using extortion like ideology and practices in their microtransaction system for their game. It's like Konami might as well be coming to your house and saying, it's like, it's a real, those are some real nice fuel resources you got there. It'd be a real shame if something happened to them. You know what I'm saying? Like, they might as well be that. But Sean, you don't get it. That's because Kojima is a genius and this is all postmodern and it's meta and reflective. Yeah, if you want any of that, go watch this week's episode of Doctor Who, because that is actually postmodern and fascinating and reflective about the series and the character. Don't go play Metal Gear Solid Five if that's what you're looking for. All right, anyway, this has been a long one. We'll talk about that more next week. We'll talk about Doctor Who. So excited to talk about next week's and, and yes. see that and everything. Uh, more movies, hopefully, to talk about. Maybe we can both try to see Crimson Peak and talk about that. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll make an effort to see Okay. It. Yeah. Because I think that could be a fun movie to talk about. Yeah. If for no other reason, Guillermo makes interesting movies. Yes, definitely. Movies that are very fun to talk about, even yeah. if you don't love all of them. Yeah, so we'll do that. And, uh, yeah. I'll keep on trucking away on Hearts of Stone with Witcher 3. All right, sounds good. And follow us on Tumblr at theweeklystuff.tumblr.com and on Twitter at Jonathan Lack. Yeah, just go tumbling. <laughs>